Hello, it's Ray Palacios, and welcome to Coalhouse Conversation. Every summer in Kansas City, 25 men have one simple mission, to win. Starting pitchers, corner power hitters, middle relievers, speedy gloves up the middle, closers, utility infielders, backup catchers, and they're each remembered here. From 1969 to last year, all Royals careers have been preserved with the most comprehensive collection of facts, memories, and stories in existence. Welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. So if you're listening to this right now, chances are that A, you're a diehard fan of the Kansas City Royals, and B, you are in love with the game of baseball. It's Dave O. Both of those two things are true for me, and probably just like you, you have your favorite early baseball team, your favorite early baseball players when you were growing up that kind of got you attached to the game of baseball in the Kansas City Royals. For me, it was those 1988 and 89 and 90 Royals teams. Those early Royals teams are still my favorite as I go back to my childhood. They first got me hooked on the games and the teams from collecting the baseball cards and the yearbooks and listening to the games on the radio, Denny and Fred back then, and you know coming to games at Kauffman Stadium and Rosenblatt Stadium in Omaha. There's nothing like it, is there? The, my favorite quote has always been, quote, a boy never has a hero in his life quite like his first favorite baseball player. And for me, it was those 89 Royals, guys like Jeff Montgomery and Brad Wellman, who I've spoken with, and a guy like Ray Palacios. Loved him. My first game in 1989, which we'll talk about here in a bit, he came in as a replacement for George Brett at first base. Primarily was a catcher, Palacios was, and a darn good one. Throughout his minor league career with the Detroit Tigers, who signed him as a free agent, he was regularly voted the best defensive catcher in whatever league he was in. Had some pop, came over to the Royals in a trade and, you know, caught for Casey, played first and third base, some outfield, pinch ran a lot for guys like Bob Boone and Mike McFarlane. Ray Palacios, who at the time he was playing, nobody really knew his background as a firefighter. He had saved in high school a woman in a wheelchair, a baby in a burning apartment. He had been a fireman in high school and now does that in 2014, was even there on 9-11, which we're going to talk about He's a true hero, you know, one of my first baseball heroes and a true hero to me in life based on serving not only the community out there in New York, but also our country. And it's an honor to have him join us right now on Clubhouse Conversation. Ray Palacios, welcome. And how are you doing, man? Hey, everything's good. We had a good day for um, Labor Day weekend so far, so very, very nice time. Now, you've been with the Rochester Fire Department since around 96-ish, is that right? Yeah, 97 I got on the job. Very cool. Well, I want to ask you a ton of questions about baseball, but I want to you know, start the interview by thanking you for your service to not only your local community there, but also your country, especially with events like 9-11. Now, I know it's tough to think back to that, but from how I understand it, you were kind of coming home from work that day, and you heard about what happened, and you just kind of got in your car and, and just drove to Brooklyn to go help out your brothers there. So what do you remember about the moment you found out about the, the horrible attacks that day? Well, I was at, I was actually doing my uh, second job. I have a roofing business, and uh, I was climbing a ladder for about a three-story house. And I get to the top of the ladder, and the lady starts screaming. So me being a fireman, I hear her door like just blow open. I'm thinking she's got a fire. So I turn around, and I'm hearing her screaming. She's trying to call her neighbor, which is probably five feet next door to her house, and she's hysterically screaming. And she's saying we're being attacked. And I didn't understand her in the beginning. I'm like, what's this lady talking about? And uh, so obviously she didn't actually have a fire. So I hear, I start understanding her saying that we're being attacked. So I go back down the ladder and I go into the house that I'm doing the roof job. I happen to be a fireman's house. 
So I go in the house, I turn the TV on, and I see the fire. And, of course, being a fireman, we love going to fires. So as I see the fire, I'm like, oh, man, it's the World Trade Center. I wonder what the hell happened. Like, I didn't see the plane hit yet. I'm looking at his flames. So I, you know, of course, being a fireman, we're like, you know, you get your adrenaline flowing. And I'm like, oh, I know my company's going to be there. We're right over the bridge. We're we're it's in Manhattan, and and we're by my father's right by the Broken Battery Tunnel, which is what you take to go right into Manhattan. When you come out of the tunnel, the towers are right there. So I was like all excited and everything. Then all of a sudden, I see this plane come. Now this is actually the second plane. I didn't know because I'm busy watching. I didn't know the first plane really went through. I was like, holy mackerel! What the hell just happened? So I'm thinking it's a replay. And I start hearing, and then I turn the volume over, I hear the guy say, oh, no, oh my God, it's the second plane. And I'm like, second plane? So I'm saying, the first plane hit the first building, then the second plane? I was like, well, this ain't good. I said, the guys, and then that, that's when I said, this ain't going to be good. I got a feeling they're going to lose a lot of brothers in this one. And then, of course, my sister calls me hysterically screaming. I can't find my niece. Her name is Gisette. Can't find a fiance. She works at the trade center now. I'm right across the street from the Trade Center, which is the uh, exchange building. She's a, uh, she works for some firm there for uh, stock and stuff like that. So <clears throat> that day, my brother was supposed to be on the 80th floor working construction. And his boss said, listen, instead of you going to that job, go to this job. So he went to the other job, and he would have been right where that plane hit. So his, they sent the other guys from his job. And they were on the 80th floor, but they were in the South Tower. So uh, I think it was, yeah, I think the South Tower, the North Tower came down first. And then that, they heard the first plane hit, and they just started running down the stairs, and they told them in that other tower, hey, don't panic, it's just a little uh, shaking or something. And they said, we're getting out of here. And as they're coming down the elevator out to the street, the next plane came, well, they would have been dead instantly it, it, it hit their floor. Ugh. Yeah. So I, I wound up talking to my sister, and I calmed her down. I told her I'm on my way. I went back to my job. I called my fire chief up. I talked to him. I said, listen, I'm going to New York City. Um, take my next set of furloughs and uh, put them where I'm supposed to be working, and uh, I need to take time off. My family's, you know, they need me right now. So um, he says, no problem. Go ahead and leave. So I, I packed all my stuff, of course, and I got in my truck. I told my wife I got to go. I went straight down to the firehouse, and I realized we had no fire trucks. They were all crushed. <sighs> and then from there, um, I want to, you know, right, I rode my Harley all the way down to New York, so that was like a six-and-a-half-hour ride. I get there, I take my gear off the rig, you know, and then I lost my best friend. Uh, he was supposed to be off duty. He was getting relieved that morning, and then and when, the, when the plane hit, then he got back on the truck like a lot of other guys did. So now I uh, get to the firehouse. And uh, a fire comes in in the, na- in the neighborhood where I grew up at. So it was the warehouse fire. So we went with one truck, a ladder truck, and then we went in, a, in two station wagons because we had no fire trucks. And then we had to wait for the engine to show up so we could put the fire out. So I wound up helping put that fire out, get back to the firehouse, and that's when everything started hitting us. We, excuse me, we started... Uh, thinking about, you know, guys that we lost. And then when I found out who got killed, I was like, oh, my God. My best friend, Sal Calabro. And then that's when I kind of broke down a little bit with the other guys. And then I said, okay, are we going to go over to the towers? And uh, 
They said, yeah, we're getting ready to go on the next Port Authority bus. So I, at that time, I called my sister. I said, listen, did you hear anything yet? And she said, yeah. I heard that uh, that, uh, that my sister, our daughter, she said, she's on her way in. She's okay. Her uh, fiance's all right. Come to find out, my oldest brother was driving a cement truck because they're always building over there. He happened to be right underneath the plane. He almost got hit by the landing gear. It landed like about 15 feet away from him. And when he saw the plane come in, he was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm seeing this. He could read the letters on it, he said. And in that area, there's not supposed to be any planes flying. You know what I mean? It's supposed to be away from Manhattan. And uh, that plane came, that was the first plane to land again, came down. So he was trying to get out of there with a truck. And trucks don't usually go on the FDR Drive. It's just a Franklin D. Roosevelt Highway. So it's all for cars. So they started putting the trucks to, to get him out of the way of the West Side Highway because that's where the towers are on the West Side. So he was holding over there. He actually barely made it to that highway, and then the towers came down. He couldn't see anything. He wanted to rescue the guy himself. He pulled him in his truck because the guy couldn't breathe. <coughs> Man. So, um, let's see what else. And then uh, after that, I found out what happened to him. So now. I find out through, the, uh, through marriage, my cousins are there, in-law cousins, and nephews and stuff through marriage that we that I know for years. They were all supposed to be in the towers that day, and it was probably like six or seven of them. They all, they're all into the uh, stock exchange and stuff. Well, what happened was the, both of them took the day off, and we didn't know. The four of them were on their way there, and the train got delayed, so they missed being in the towers. That just saved them. And we just, and then once we got to the towers, we just started working, man. It was like, you know, we were crying, and then just, just the destruction was just, you, you can't even you know, imagine it. It's just, it's just horrific. I mean, fire trucks crushed, fire trucks drove right through the ground, uh, firemen crushed under their fire trucks, fire everywhere, smoke everywhere. This is the next day. Firemen are still marching in from all over the United States. And, uh, you know, of course, everything was chaotic. All the companies were looking for their guys. But once they found out which companies were in which tower and stuff like that, like we went to the uh, to the North Tower, where our company was, by the uh, Marriott Hotel. They were between the Marriott Hotel lobby and the towers. Well, it's all really one big building, but, you know, the Marriott's on one side, and they got they got crushed in there. So we, we went in there, and we started going through holes, trying to get under the ground, because it goes down like seven stories, I think, because you have the trains down there. Yeah. There was nothing, no life, man, at all. We found people all mutilated down there, I mean, crushed to death, and body parts everywhere. There was not one desk, one chair, no office furniture, no computers. Everything was pulverized to powder. It was really, it was really unmanageable. I mean, it's it's crazy man well like you mentioned i know uh, you lost seven of your brothers that day including your best friend sal and so i've read that you painted the names of those guys on your motorcycle so do you still have yeah. that bike and then also i want you if you if you'd like to to go ahead and talk about those seven guys and kind of honor them and tell us about them uh yeah uh we had our seven guys uh, well sal collaborate was my best friend uh, you know really one of my real closest friends in the fire department over there um when um you know, when I heard he got killed, man, because I know his wife and the kids, they were just very small babies and stuff. And I was like, man, this is un- this is unbelievable. 
And I mean, we we were crushed, man. We we uh, we, we we were trying to find him, you know, find the whole crew, really. You know what I mean? So we were just working our tails off, and we were literally exhausted. We were there probably for twelve hours, thirteen, fourteen hours, just digging and, and crawling through stuff. So I was a very good friend of mine. <clears throat> you know, his, his uh, wife is an awesome person. The kids, you know, they were just small. Good guy, um, Lieutenant Gullickson. He wasn't even supposed to be working that day. He was working for Captain Giordano, who's a very good friend of mine as well. And, um, and that captain, till today, is still having a hard time, just like all of us, because, you know, he, he feels it should have been him instead of the other guy. But, you know, this job, sometimes things happen, you know what I mean? And he really took it really hard. He said it should have been him instead of, you know, Gullison. He just had, Lieutenant Gullison just had twins. And this guy had a double whammy, which was bad for him, uh, um, that other plane that crashed, <coughs> I don't know, it might, might have been maybe a month later with a shoe bomber in Queens, New York. Yeah. Well, his father-in-law is Dominican, and he was going back to take care of some business in Dominican because the mother-in-law, uh, well, his father-in-law and the mother-in-law came to take care of the, the wife, because they just had twins, and uh, to help her get through this. So the father-in-law had to go back. I want to say it was probably, I don't know, it might have been three weeks to a month, and he was on that plane. He got killed in Queens, New York. The shoe bomber. Yes! I'm on the phone. So, the, uh, they're thinking it's the shoe bomber. Uh, and uh, the shoe bomber was uh, um, just the one that blew up that plane. So, he, he not only did they lose the, the, the son-in-law, they also lost the father-in-law. And through that other plane crash, and uh, the other guys, uh, Patrick Burns, he was a great guy. He he had maybe seven years on his job or something like that. He loved the fire department. Great guy, great family man. Um, <clears throat> he was young. He was lost as well. Um, Canizaro, Brian Canizaro was a police officer, and his best friend Eric was uh, a fireman. And Eric tells him, take the test and come on over here, man. This is a better job. You know, you do more things and stuff like that. And so he, he convinced his best friend. So the guy takes the test, transfers over, and two years later he, was, he got killed. Um, so it was like it was one thing after another um, that kept happening over there. Um, when we kept finding guys, although we couldn't find our guys, we wanted to find one of our helmets. There was no body around on no body at all to be found, just the helmet. So we would think we were going to be getting close. And then uh, Ter- Terrence uh, McShane, he was uh, another young firefighter. He probably had like, I want to say, 10 years on the job. And uh, he was also caught up in that whole thing. I didn't know him too well. Um, I already had left to come up to Rochester. So um, I didn't get a chance to actually meet him when he, was on, when he came on the job came from another firehouse um that's pretty much uh most of the guys um that were down there well you know thank you for your service both what you're doing there and then of course being brave and and going in there and doing whatever you could to help out man i mean that had to have been obviously the worst day of everyone's life pretty much i mean but talk Uh, talk about what it was like seeing people come together down there and how proud that made you uh, that was that was pretty big. I mean, I, I'm a New Yorker to the heart. I mean, um, the New York people are really, you know, it's, everything, everything's a fast life down there. 
Um, but the New York people, when they got to come together, they come together, man. And I'll tell you, they 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 came together, man, and they started helping one another. I mean, people didn't even know each other needed help. They were getting them across the Brooklyn Bridge. People that needed uh, an ambulance, they were trying to get them to an ambulance because we lost ambulance people as well, and we lost ambulances that were there. So there was there was help coming from civilians that 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 we you know you don't really expect to see. I mean, people were just trusting one another and and you know calling out for help and stuff like that. Because we were shorthanded, you know. You lose 300 guys, and then you're calling in all these other companies, and people coming in off duty to come to work there because it was just it was just overwhelming. Too many too many things going on. But the people from New York City, uh, they gripped together, and it was uh, it was unbelievable, man. They 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 helped each other out and helped us out when we needed help, and it was really amazing. Well, let's go back in time. So you grew up in Brooklyn and staying with the whole firefighter thing. You were a teen firefighter there, and you once rescued a baby from an apartment fire, and you also rescued an elderly woman in a wheelchair from yeah. another apartment. What, where, where did that interest come from in firefighting? Um, I have family members. Uh, I had uncles who were firefighters. Uh, I, had a, I had one uncle who was a captain. Uh, another uncle uh, became a battalion chief, and another uncle was a captain. And uh, I had a cousin who was a, a firefighter. He worked in a very busy fire. He worked at Engine 290, which they, back in the day, they used to get like 10,000, 12,000 calls a year. Wow. With a ton of fires. Yeah. It's still burning right now. It's called Brownsville, East New York section. It's one of the worst sections in, in uh, New York City right now. Um, but growing up back then, it was... You know, that's how I got into the fire, firefighter side. I, you know, I love excitement and, uh, of course, I love danger. Yeah. And uh, I just wanted to go full force with it. So I started already hanging out, hanging around the firehouses when I was, like, nine, ten years old. And I just, you know, I remember when they used to go to the firehouse, they used to let me, back then they had brass couplings. They don't even, they don't even make that anymore. Everything's aluminum now. And they used to have to polish them. So they would have me sit down. I was just a little kid and start polishing the brass. I would not watch the trucks. Things like that, and then my uncles would take me to the firehouse every once in a while. And my mom would take me over there, and they became uncles through marriage. Um, so I would—that's how I would get to the firehouse. My mom would take them, take me to the firehouse, and I would spend a little bit of time, you know, two two hours a, at a time, and I would I'd learn a lot of stuff from my uncles and the firefighters here working with them. Huh. Now, so obviously you have a passion for helping people as well. <laughs> Did you stay in touch with uh, with the woman or the baby's family after that happened back in high school? No. No, that was uh, that rescue I made was. It was funny because I I was already involved with the fire department. So now I'm in high school, so I've already been through a lot of training as an auxiliary fireman. So I'm with my high school coach, and um, I see the commotion on the block, and um, I go, I think there's a fire on it. Coach, he goes, Oh, and maybe there is, and there's no fire trucks yet. So I can see the smoke coming out the window, and I can see people screaming and yelling. Nobody would go into the to the tenement house, the apartment house. So I, I said, come on, let's go down and see what's going on. Because I, I already been through the maze and stuff like that in the fire service. So I said, you know, I don't have an air pack though. So what happened was the brownstone buildings. They each floor has it can, you can make that an apartment if you want. So I think it was the three-story uh, brownstone. So like usually down the ground floor is you can make that your basement if you own the whole place and use the second floor. Actually, it would be the first floor, but you got to go up some stairs. That would be your apartment. They usually make that in the basement, or they rent out downstairs, and that's you can make that whole apartment. That's how big they are. 
So I I um I went up the stairs and I, well before I went up the stairs I heard the lady screaming. She's outside. I said what's what's the problem? And people saying that she couldn't speak English. So she's, they're saying her baby must be upstairs. And uh, I'm saying well, where's the baby? You know. And then somebody came and spoke whatever language it was. And I think it might have been Russian, but I'm not even sure. And, and they asked, and then she, the guy points. He says the baby's in that bedroom in that window. So I said okay. So I ran up the stairs, the outside stairs. Now I'm, I'm in the interior stairs. I can hear the fire popping upstairs. So I run up the stairs. As I get to the top, uh, second floor landing, I can see the kitchen is going pretty good. So I close the door. I get on my knees and I start crawling down the hallway. And I go into the last door. That's where the bedroom was because they said it was that room near the window. So I get in the door and I start searching. And sure enough, the baby was there. So as I try to come back out, the smoke was so heavy I couldn't, I couldn't make it out. And then I, I looked and I see that the fire started burning at the top of the door, so it's coming through. So, I, so I, what I did was I went back into the bedroom, closed the door, broke the glass, went, and went out to the porch. And, and I hear the fire trucks coming. So you know, it was kind of uh, scary, but at the same time, it was like you're, you were pumped. And uh, the, the, the fire trucks started to pull up, and they see me on the roof. They're thinking, it's my baby. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know I pulled the baby out of the apartment. So they put the ladder up. And, and the baby down and everything, you know, everybody's like clapping one not. So then my coach is standing there, he goes, man, you did a hell of a job. And I said, you're something else. <laughs> so I said, ah, it's all right. I said, it's all right, coach. This, this is what, I, my, what my goal is to do in the future, I told him. So then the chief comes over to me and goes, uh, did you just pull that baby out of that building? I said, yeah. I just uh, went upstairs and boom, I told him what I did. He goes, nice job. He goes, I need your name and everything. And they, they, they did, uh, they put me in the paper and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty uh, exciting. Then I'm in high school and everybody's looking at me in the paper and whatnot. <laughs> and that was that was pretty exciting. The one with the wheelchair was, uh, that was actually in my own neighborhood. Um, I had my scanner on in my hand and I heard the fire come in. It's just up the block from my house. So my firehouse, my, where I hung out at, is like nine blocks away. So I, I ran over there, and I, and I could see the ladies at the window. And uh, I climb up the stairs, and I go up, and I grab the fire escape, and I jumped, and I grabbed it, and I pulled it down. I ran up to the fire escape, because there was no way I was going to get her out through the interior. You know what I mean? Because so I, I tried to go up through the interior stairs, and there was no way. The smoke was so black and thick. There was no way, because it was actually a first-floor fire. And the fire escape, thank God, it was like, further over away from the building instead of being in the middle of the building it was a window then I went up and then I went I think she was on the second floor and I opened up the window pulled her out of the wheelchair just I mean she didn't weigh anything I would say you know when you pumped up if she was probably 120 pounds wow. I just pulled her up on my shoulder and just started going down the stairs with her and as I'm going down the fires are starting to come but by that time I'm already on the ground with her and you know, she needed some oxygen and stuff like that. And the guys were like, oh, right, because they, they knew I hung out at the firehouse. So they were, like, all excited for me because I'm going through this auxiliary program. And so I got a little write-up for that one. And then there was one more actual, I was an assist to a rescue. Um, I was I was riding with my uncle. I had a BD at this time, 18 years old. So I was a full-fledged auxiliary fireman, so I was able to fight fires and everything. So now I, I, I would go work with my uncle because he was old. he was in a lot more busy firehouse than my neighbor was. My neighbor was busy back then, but they were really busy. 
so I would ride with him. So we went to a call for the projects for a kid trapped in the elevator on top of the elevator because they, they rolled the elevator. They probably still do it today. The kids would go up to inside the elevator, and then they get on top and ride it up and down. Well, this kid falls, and when he falls, he falls in between the elevator and the wall on the 11th floor. Oh. So now, yeah, this kid is upside down, pinned between the elevator and the wall. He's still alive. His leg is completely just peeled right back. His one leg from the thigh, hip bone thigh, all the way down to the knee. So he's bleeding a lot. Now they have no power. They have to shut the elevator down. So my uncle goes, we need the hearse tool. So I run downstairs, grab this hearse tool, and I carry it up 11 stories, man. And I, when I got up there, I was, I was done. But I got the tool up there, and they were able to start breaking those um, cement walls. And uh, once they broke the cement walls, man, you could see the kid right behind the wall. And then they had to figure out a way. They put the jaws in there, and then they opened up the steel and spread it. And they were able to pull the kid out of there. The kid wound up living. I wound up getting a big accommodation for that one. Holy cow. How is this yeah. stuff not in the media guy, like the Royals media guys? You would have thought they would have been talking I, I, about that. I, I never really said much. Oh, okay. Um, I'm, I'm like one of those guys that just do things and just just be humble about it, you know? Wow. I mean, you you would have been everybody's favorite baseball player if you would have known this <laughs> stuff, you know? Well, so. Well, guys. The guys used to make fun of me, though. We used to be on the bus. Like, I, I never forget, we went to play the Red Sox, and they we stayed at the Sheridan downtown, and the firehouse, I think it was Engine 7, and they were right there. And I, I used to go visit every firehouse, every city I played in when I was with the Royals. <laughs> so I, I meet the guys there, and I, I always left them some tickets and stuff. Because so, it's, a, it's a fraternity, it's a brotherhood. So, And uh, it was funny. You know, I would hear the sirens. And they see me, my head pop up, and I'd be looking for the fire truck to go by the bus or something. They go, all right, just relax, Ray, calm down. <laughs> I'm going to a fire right now. <laughs> That's great. I love uh, it. Dude. Did you uh, <laughs> did you get to get to know some firemen here in Kansas City then, I'm assuming? You know, it's been so long, I'll be honest with you, Dave, that I actually don't remember their names. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I used to visit the firehouse right downtown. Um, I actually used to ride my Harley up to there and I went and met the guys. I got a T-shirt from them, which is all old by now. And uh, I used to leave them tickets um, to come to the game and stuff like that. You know, and I, I didn't try to uh, abuse the system. I, you know, like try to get into their firehouse. I mean, they were just very courteous, and they were excited to have a you know a Rose player come by. It was a downtown firehouse. I don't remember what number it was. It's been so long. It's got to be almost 20 years now. So well, longer than that, and, 25, 24. Yeah. Yeah, somewhere in there. So I used to go and leave tickets every once in a while, and you know, I made a couple of friends, and you know. But I, you know, it's like anything else, you lose contact with people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Change yeah. cell phones, and you don't call them for a while. And it, it was cool. I used to have some fun with the guys over there. I mean, they're they're busy over there in Kansas City, man. Yeah. Well, so let's go back then and talk about. It. So you went to John Jay High School in Brooklyn, and so was baseball your always your number one sport, and were you a Mets or Yankees guy growing up? I was actually uh, a Mets growing up when I was a kid. Um, when I, when I uh, went to John Jay High School, I, used, I loved the Mets all the time. I, I would watch them play every day. I mean, even before I became a professional, when I was about six years old, I used to have my own um, notebook, and I used to have my lineup written up either for the Yankees or for the Mets. It didn't matter. I just wanted to keep square at home. 
So I started doing that when I was a kid. Yeah, I used to watch the game from the first inning to the ninth inning, and I'd be writing in everything, you know, F8, whatever, fly it out, or stolen base. I had a whole thing in my house, and I learned it on my own, you know, because my dad was working all the time. So, And then I actually, when, when I went to high school, um, my high school coach was like, how do you learn how to keep this so well? I says, uh, I, I started doing this when I was six years old. He says, no wonder. <laughs> huh. So I thought that was pretty cool. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a Brooklyn native. Uh, I love the Mets. Now as I got older, I, you know, I support all of New York sports. So to me, I'm not a really like Yankees fan or Mets fan anymore. I just support all, anything that's doing New York. I just hope one of the teams get in the playoffs, whatever it is, hockey, whatever. Yeah. Well, then you so you went to Kingsboro Community College there in Brooklyn, which has produced only one other MLB player, you and Pete Falcone. So what made you decide to go there? And then when you first got there, did you ever in a million years think you'd be good enough to play pro someday? Um, well, when I was in high school, my high school coach, Matt Rossi, he came and told me one day, you know, I was, you know, back then they had no science for ADD, so I was really all over the place. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, you know, you have so much talent, you have no idea. You know, you got to start hanging around with the right guys because you're going to get in trouble with these other guys. And I was like, well, okay, coach, you know. And I'm saying to myself, yeah, a ghetto kid is going to really be having professional talent, you know. So now I uh, I wound up, you know, playing in the high school. And from him telling me this in high school, it just started escalating. You know, MVP in high school, junior year, MVP senior year. All city catcher. Um, well, I started center field and then I finished the season as a catcher. Wanted to be an all city catcher, junior year, senior year, and then uh, the colleges are watching me. I had offers from Oklahoma State, Miami, and stuff. But I, you know, at the time, baseball was still going through a rough time of uh, racial, you know, things. And I and I said to myself, you know, what would that be like to go to, to the South and try and play? So when he sent me all these things from these colleges, I also had offers from Brooklyn College, Kingsboro Community College, which is junior college. But I looked at the Oklahoma City roster, and I'm looking, I said, man, there's only one black kid on this team? You know, and I'm saying, I don't know. I don't think that's a good idea to go down there. And, you know, cause at that time, I'm going back 1970, 79, 81, somewhere in there. Yeah. And, and I said to myself, mm, I don't know if I want to do this. So I, I, I went to Kingsboro, and I said, you know, they have a good baseball program, and the coach wanted me to go there, and they wound up actually giving me a free ride. Oh, well, that worked out. Everything paid for. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. then the Detroit then signed you in 1982 as an amateur free agent. So how did the Tigers, you know, find you, and were there any other teams interested in you at well, that time? Yeah, there was teams interested in me. Um, the Dodgers, St. Louis Cardinals, Pittsburgh, and Detroit. Detroit is a good story because the guy that was actually watching me was actually a bird dog scout. So he wasn't a full-time scout. He was a police officer who loved baseball, had knowledge of the game, played it in high school and college, then he became a police officer. He saw me playing and he continued to follow me from high school. And also he came to watch me at Sandlot. So when I played in high school, I mean, I was like a Division One high school. It was like guys like myself. Sean Dunstan for the Cubs, um, Johnny Franco, uh, wow. Carmine Spurdo, who pitched for the Braves, uh, minor league system. I mean, I, I, Stevie St. Hill got picked up by the Baltimore Orioles. He signed, he got drafted. George McGuire got drafted by the Tigers. This is all my 
all the different teams. I'm, I'm naming you different players that were in that division. So there was a lot of um, guys that played professional ball that came out of that division. When I went to college, I wound up being rookie of the year. Uh, best catch in the league, the whole nine yards. And then the Tigers uh, kept watching me. They watched me in the Sandlot League where Dunstan played and everybody else played. And we, I tore it up. It was always me and Sean, always the top players in the league. And then uh, Stevie St. Hill came, came by later on. He was on my team, and then he wanted to develop it. Then uh, I wound up getting uh, picked up by, uh, well, I was playing with Kingsborough. And then that's when Joel Knight was the guy's name. He's also, now he's got a full-time job with the Seattle Mariners. We're still great friends. And his partner, who he was actually bird dogging for, his name was Ray Bellino. He was a scout that could sign me. And he sent Ray Bellino to come and watch me play. And Ray goes, I don't want that kid. That kid looks like trouble. <laughs> yeah. So now, this is the truth. That, you know, they thought, because I, you know, I, was, I was boxing back then and all that other stuff, so they thought, you know, I was going to be a, uh, a pain in their butt. So they wouldn't sign me. He didn't want me. You know, I was one of the best players in the city. Then uh, he came to watch me in the high school uh, championship game, and I, I tore that up. And he says, no, nah, I don't think we're going to take this kid in shoulders. just really pissed. <laughs> so now I want to go to college. I want to be in the best catch and everything. And, and still, he went not sign me. So I wound up going back to play my Santa uh, League for uh, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds. And I wound up going away with the team that beat us for the championship in Brooklyn, which was Gil Hodges. So they asked me, I was the only player picked in the whole league to go play with them. So I wound up going to play in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. It's called the Triple ABF Tournament. And that, that tournament, yeah, nothing but big-time scouts for all the major league teams. I want to put on a show. I, I, they put me in right field. I wound up throwing out two guys from the wall. Huh. Then... I got. I went in the doubleheader, four for seven, two home runs. I think it was like five RBIs. I didn't, then the catcher could not throw anybody else. The coach said, "Can you please catch if you don't mind?" <laughs> I went up throwing out like four guys in the two games. So now everything's over. We want to get knocked out of the tournament. So I'm I'm, I'm walking behind on plate, and I I'm, I see all the scouts and everything. This guy comes over to me. He goes, "Hey kid," I said, "Yes sir." He goes, "How come they haven't signed you in Brooklyn?" I said, "Because they don't like me." <laughs> I was cocky, man. So, make a long story short, this guy's name is Ed Catalinus. He's the guy that signed, signed Al Kaline. <laughs> so he goes, well, I need to talk to your coach. I said, no. I said, I'll sign a contract right now. I don't want no money. I don't need no draft. I don't need any. I told him, he says, you need to calm down. I, I, I heal like that to me. So they called the coach over. And he says, can I talk to you, coach? And he's talking to the coach. And he says, uh, when are you guys going home? So I think we got knocked out on Monday. And I think we had a fly out on Tuesday. And we were getting in late Tuesday night. So he said, uh, I'm going to send the scout over to this kid's house, this kid's house Palacio, so we can sign him as a free agent. So then I get home Tuesday night. Joe Nigro called me. He says, uh, you ain't gonna believe this, they're making you an offer as a free agent. And he says, What's that? He said, Well, they're gonna offer you a contract. I said, They're gonna give me any money? Because like, we ain't got anything here. So they gave me $1,000. Huh. And uh, they came to my house the next day, and the guy that didn't want to sign me, they had to come and sign me. <laughs> I love it. And that's, <laughs> it comes full circle there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so he went up, go ahead. 
I was gonna say, I mean, how proud were your parents and family and friends? I mean, they got to be on cloud nine, right? Well, everybody was very excited. My brother, my mother's brother was uh, uh, with the Dodge organization in the fifties or something like that. I didn't even know that until later on. And uh, my family was very excited. Uh, my dad was very proud of me. Um, all my brothers and sisters, we were all here. We had a bottle of champagne. I had my high school coach here. and my college coach at the house. And, uh, you know, my brothers and sisters, and uh, I, signed, I signed my contract in front of them and everything. And we had a little toast, and it uh, went really well. Wow, what a great memory. So then you began your pro career, 83, in Bristol, Virginia, for the Bristol Tigers. You hit 302, and you had seven home runs and just 139 at-bats. What are your favorite memories yeah. of, that, of that first summer away from home? What do you remember about that? Well, I, I can tell you right now, growing up in the hood in New York City was kind of funny, man. When I went to <laughs> freaking Bristol, Virginia, man, I'm like, I, I get there. I'm looking around like these people are still riding horses over here in the street. <laughs> like, what the hell is this? I, I thought I always see that in cowboy movies. Right. This is no lie, Dave. I'm 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 right by maybe three blocks from uh, Bristol Stadium there in Bristol, Virginia, and uh, I, I'm looking and uh, I see this girl with this big horse and she's coming down the street. I'm like, what the hell? She's actually going grocery shopping. She ties the horse up on the, the, the rail they got there. I'm like, I, and I'm talking to the Spanish guys because they can't speak no English, so they're with me because they, they can't speak English. One was Jose Barreto. I'll never forget his name. The other one was uh, Maximiano Soto from Dominican Republic. So I got two Latin guys who can't speak no English. The one Latin, the two of them grew up in, like, the, the country, so they were used to seeing horses. I wasn't, you know. I, we don't even have grass in New York City. Everything's... <laughs> cement and asphalt right so i'm going you gotta be kidding me then i see her come out with her groceries and things like that we i just start cracking up laughing look at this i feel like i'm watching the wild wild west tv here (laughs) but uh it was it was cool man when i went down and now you know here i am i'm down in the south you know and i'm like oh my god you know bristol virginia what the hell and i didn't even know when i crossed the street i was in bristol tennessee right yep but uh it was tough it was tough man like i told you man the the racism was really tough, uh, not only with some of my players and things like that, but, I mean, just what we had to go through to try and get an apartment down there. It was just really sad. You know, people think that, oh, it was nothing back there. So let me tell you, man, you have no idea. When I actually tell people the stories that I went through and what we had to do sometimes, it was just it was pathetic, man, sad. But character building, I, I'm sure, right? Oh, yeah. Well, I, in New York City, it's not like that. I mean, this is they call it, they don't call it the melting pot for nothing. You got every race in over in, in New York City. So people are used to seeing blacks, whites, Chinese, you know, Jewish, whatever. You know what I mean? We, It's just part of New York City. You just walk through what you got. You know what I mean? Yeah. But when I went down there, man, it was just black or white, and that was it. I was like, wow. So, you know, I didn't pay any attention. You know, I didn't pay no mind to what I should say. But, like, getting our apartment, um, you know, we, we didn't have a car back then. We were only making 300 bucks a year. I mean, a month. And we had to walk down this main strip right right from the stadium. You walk out of the stadium across the street and you go down the main road and you can see everybody with their rental signs for an apartment because they knew the players were in town. They knew the season was going to start. And then I forget, man, we, we knocked on at least 10 houses and they would not rent to us. Jeez. And then the other two, probably two or three white guys come behind me from my team. They're not going to do it. They let them right inside the contract and boom, they're gone. Jeez. So we walked almost three miles up that main strip, and we, I see this guy with a 
Torrance sign. It's, it's a big old chubby white guy with overalls, and he's spitting chew tobacco, so I don't even know what that is. <laughs> so he's spitting it into some can or whatever, and he says, hey, I said, sir, how you doing? He said, I see you got the sign for rent apartment. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to rent it? You guys both play? I said, yeah, yeah. So we tell him, yeah, he's going to rent us the place. And we get in there. Damn, somebody, nobody hasn't lived in this apartment in probably about five years. The spider webs are about 10 feet wide. Oh, my God. So we didn't have no money. So we got to go to the store and try to scrape up cleaning products and everything. And, and they, they didn't even ask us anything if we needed help or anything. And, and the, you know, none of the coaches or the Tigers or anything. All they want to know is that you got to be on the field. That's yeah. all they care about. So we had to clean out the apartments and everything. And, and I mean, it was disgusting. Wow. And that's where we had to live. And we had to walk four miles every day to the park. Good God. Well, the yeah. other guys only had to walk three blocks. Well, that's, yeah. Well, so the next yeah. year in 84, you were at High A Lakeland in the Florida State League. Now, here, here's a couple of cool things you might remember. You had five hits in a game versus St. Pete, and then you had a grand slam against Daytona Beach. What sticks out about that second year in, in Pro Bowl? Oh, that was that was pretty. I remember that uh, St. Pete game. Um, I want to meet in uh, Lance Johnson. Um, one dog. Yeah, one dog. Uh, I used to play against him a lot uh, in the minor leagues. Um, we became friends. Marty Peavy, who was a catcher, left-handed hitter, they were just ecstatic with me because of my arm. I had a cannon for an arm. And I had a lot of power. Um, they couldn't get a fastball by me. Um, but I mean, I I remember that game. Five hits. Um, what's one kid's last name was Wilson, and Bernard Gilkey was on that team too. Oh, loved him, outfielder. He a, yeah, he was a left fielder. And I'm trying to remember some of the other guys. I can't really. Uh, anyway, so those were the guys that were there. I remember that game in St. Pete, man. It just stand out. And the Grand Slam at Daytona Beach was a hell of a shot. Ken Caminiti was down there, I think. Yeah, yeah. he was with the with the uh, Daytona Beach then. And you had, uh, yeah, what, did. Jim Wallowander was on your team or whatever? Jim Wallowander, yeah. yeah. He yeah. was a second baseman with us. Yeah. yeah. God, those were some great names. So then in 85, uh, you started off at Lakeland, and then you went to AA Birmingham. And so the next year, it was 86 at Glens Falls when you really, really, really took off. But when you think back to 85, so obviously you knew deep down you were always going to make it. But did, did you feel like in 85, did the Tigers feel like you were a major prospect? Did you feel like you were being treated seriously? Um, I... I knew I was, in my own world, I knew I had potential to make it. Where I stood with them at the time, I didn't know. But the greatest thing that happened to me is my first time in spring training. Bill DeJoy, RSSO, so, he's like a dad to me. He saw me catch a minor league game, just not even a catch a minor league game, just catch the pitches. And he saw the way I was catching the ball for a, for a 20-year-old kid, 19, 20-year-old kid. And he goes like this. And he saw me throw. He goes to the, to the train, the Miley train, says, send this kid with a uniform across the street tomorrow. So here I am. I'm in spring training. I have no idea what's going on. And I'm just a kid. And I call my father. I said, I don't know, Dad. They're sending me across the street to the big league camp. He just wanted to see if I can handle the big league pitches as they're throwing 96 miles an hour. Huh. And that's how that escalated. Then I want to go to big league camp. And I want him staying there for like two weeks. Sent me back. So I, I want to fight for my job for rookie ball. The next year they sent me to big league camp again. I want to stay along and playing some games, doing okay. And then uh, in '85, that year I want to go to big league camp. And I stood there almost the whole time, and I did pretty well. And then 
he said to me, listen, you're going to have a job when you go back. You're going to play A ball. You're the starting catcher. And then all of a sudden they uh, had this guy they signed high. His name was Steve Yeager. It wasn't a Yeager for the Dodgers. And he was from Brigham Young University. He gave him all this money. The guy could not do anything like I could. So I had to wait to play. So when my turn came, that was it. They uh, they moved him to double A because they felt he was a little older than me. But I was a better player than him. And the GM said, let, him, let Ray play every day in April. So then the other guy to double A. So somebody heard of something, if I could recall. And I wound up doing pretty well that year at uh, high A. Yeah, well, then... 86 was ridiculous. So you were with uh... Well, 86 was an unbelievable year for me. Yeah. You were I was God. I was going to say. I mean, you were an Eastern League All-Star that year. You were second in the league with 16 home runs. You were fourth in walks. You threw out 48 runners and you were rated the best defensive catcher in the entire league. So I mean, thinking back yeah. to that year, yeah. Well, that's that year was an awesome year because not only did I did well that year, that was the year I got put on the big league roster. Oh. So with the Royal, with the with the Royal, the Tigers, but what was amazing, what was cool about that year, you know, I played against some really good competition in that in that Double A league. Like the Cubs were in that league, and they had a bomb squad, man. They had, uh, of course, Maddox was pitching, Greg Maddox. Jeez. Back then, he threw 95 miles an hour. You know, yeah. he was a young guy. Then they had Gary Varsho, Dunstan, Palmero, Ralphie Palmero. Um, let me see who else there that I can remember. Drew Hall, oh, like a hundred from the left side. Yeah. You just didn't know where it was going. <laughs> I remember, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, they had some hollow plays. It was a good league. The Pirates were in that league. Um, the Phillies were in their Phillies Reddings. Yeah, Rich, uh, Ricky Jordan was there. Dalton. I mean, I played against some, some, some good competition. But that year was awesome for me because I got put on the 40-man roster because I think it was either Cleveland and Toronto they wanted to take me. So they had to make a decision whether to put me on the roster or not. So once they found out there was interest in me, they put me on the roster. So I wound up going to big league camp right after that. Yeah, that was, I mean, just a tremendous year. And Bob Schaefer was your manager that year, who would be with the Royals yep. later on. Did you like Bob okay? Yeah. Yeah, Bob was the bomb, man. He was a hell of a coach. I mean, I played almost, almost the whole season for him. I played catcher all the time. And also third base for him. Um, well, I should say most ninety percent of the time I would catch, and we had double headers. I would go to third base or first base, and uh, and play because um, my bat. But uh, yeah, it was uh, that was an amazing story about the Royal stuff. How I got over there. Yeah, we're coming to that in a second. I got you a couple more last ones about the Tigers. So eighty-seven, you spent the full year at Triple A Toledo. You were again an All-Star in the International League. You led all catchers with an amazing sixty-six assists, thirteen home runs, drove in sixty. So that final season in, or that first season in Toledo, I should say. I mean, were you getting kind of wondering why you weren't getting the call up to the big leagues by then? Yeah. Well, I first of all that year you got to go back to spring training because I was in big league camp. Now I'm on. I'm 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 legit trying to make the team now. And um, I remember Bill LaJoy actually starting to say, listen, we got to start making room for this kid and uh, let him back up Lance Parrish when the time comes. And I wound up tearing it up in AAA um, after spring training because, you know, the general manager, Bill LaJoy, was really crazy. But Sparky Innocent ran the show, and him and Sparky didn't see eye to eye. So they wound up sending me back down, which was no problem. I, I said, okay, I, I can go back. Um, I need to play triple A ball. Well, I was ready when I went to triple A, man. I said, I'm going to tear this thing up because I need to get to the big leagues. 
now I'm in AAA, there's a lot of ex-big league ball players in AAA. At my time, there had to be guys with seven, eight years in the show that are in AAA, and they try to get back. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like even pitching. It's not like today's AAA. Like I, I, I go to the Rochester Red Wings in Rochester, and it's like it's pathetic compared to when I played. Yeah, AAA. nobody There's hangs so out anymore. They make too much money no. now. Yeah, yeah. So I wound up being the uh, MVP catcher, and I made the All-Star again. And, this, and the sad part about that year in 87, I was supposed to get called up. And uh, we were in uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania. I never forget my manager was Leon Roberts. And uh, he goes, uh, we're not leaving yet. I said, well, what's happening? Because Dwight Lowry had gotten sent down. He threw his arm out. So they're going to need a third catcher for to start the uh, uh, end of August and September. You know what I mean? So now uh, I'm sit- we're sitting there waiting, and Leon said, well, they're supposed to be calling you up. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. No. And then the last minute, they called the White Lowry back up just to have a catch on the roster who can't even, can't even pick his arm up. That's how bad Sparky didn't like me. Huh. And when that happened, him and Bill Joy just clashed. So I had a hell of a spring, too. I had an awesome spring training in 87. Now I come to the 88 season, I had an unbelievable spring training. With the Tigers, unbelievable! I, I hit like three, four home runs. I had like twenty RBIs in spring training. I was playing, throwing out runners left and right. Then um, that was the year my son was born. He was born on March 29th. So now the I wound up tearing it up, and they made their final cuts. I thought, and all the guys came over to me: Lou Whitaker, Alan Trammell. I heard they go, hey, hey kid, nice job, man. You're gonna go, you're gonna go north with us, man. Opening days tomorrow. And I said to him, listen, the front office didn't even come over and talk to me yet. Meanwhile, that morning, in the clubhouse, that's where the manager's office is, like like in the middle of the clubhouse. Like if you walk in and be on the left side, mm-hmm. I could hear Bill and Jerry Sparky just going at it head to head. They cursing each other out. I could hear Bill saying, you got to take this kid, he's effing ready, I don't want to hear what you got to say, you got nothing to compare to him right now in this organization, and you got nobody up here who can play like him right now. I said, he's got to go with Lance right now, so Lance can teach him some um, some pointers in the league and how to pitch to certain hitters and, and learn the pitching staff. Well, I mean, I mean, literally, all that had had. So behind Bill DeJoy's back, Sparky had went ahead and was waiting for a trade. It was Alano Mercado from the Texas Rangers, who was a Latin catcher, who was horrible. Hmm. I played against him in winter ball for years. So now I didn't know this. So, you know, the guys are talking to me. I'm sitting on the bus. And they don't, the manager doesn't say anything to me. The coaches don't say anything to me. So I'm sitting on the bus. I went and bought a new suit and everything because I'm thinking I'm going to go north. My son was born the day before. I'm sitting there. I'm sitting there. The bus is running. And we're waiting there. We're waiting there. And that's when they had the old cell phones, those big gray cell phones. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm sitting there, and, uh, and, you know, we're talking. I'm talking to Lou, and Lou's like, yo, man, you ready to go? And he said, you tore up spring training. I said, yeah, I'm ready to go. Yeah, man, I, I, I think you're going to be all right. I said, I don't know, man. I have a feeling that I'm going to lie. Just like this. Once he got that phone call, he said, Palacio, come to the front of the bus. I go, what did I tell you? And they're going, man, I can't believe this, man. It was, you had the best spring out of the whole damn team, they go. So now I go to the front of the bus. He says, uh... We made a trade for Alonzo McConnell. I said, are you kidding me? I went just like that to him. I said, the guy can't hold my jock strap, I told him. I said, why would you even, call, why would you even get him? And I said, I want, my, I want my pink slip. I told him just like that. So 
of course, I get off the bus. They leave. They're going off to Boston, Fenway. And then I forget it was opening day in Fenway. So I go in the clubhouse, and the GM is there. And I said, Mr. LaJoy, I want to thank you for everything, but this organization is not for me. I need. I know I got other teams interested in me. Can you please get me out of here? He goes, uh, I'll see what I can do. So I, you know, you have three days to report when you come from big league camp to report to the minor league camp. I reported the next day. So I wasn't going to take no time off. You know what I mean? Yeah. So now I get down to spring training. They were like, usually guys are all pissed off and everything. I wasn't pissed because I knew that they had to be other teams interested in me. So I knew Cleveland was after me because they were they were about, they were coming to all my spring training games at big league camp. Toronto wanted me to be a starting catcher. So did Cleveland and the Mets. So now. I want to go into AAA. I want to turn up AAA in the first half of the season. By that time, they were interested in making a trade. So when Sparky says, I need another pitcher, it got down to, I think, the end of August or something like that, I want to say. August 31st. Yep. They uh, traded one of his Red Machine boys, Ted Powers. Yep. Because he wanted a middle reliever because he loves those old guys. <laughs> and he, he does. He loves his veteran <laughs> players. So he trades me. Straight to Kansas City, and I want to go straight to Bigley's, which opened the door. Well, yeah, so where? Well, I don't know. That's it's weird. Well, one last question about Detroit. So you were also, you keep talking about the offense, but you were also the best defensive catcher in the International League. Baseball America said that. I mean, wh- what do you think it was about Sparky that he didn't like about you? I don't know. He never came to tell me anything, and I, I wasn't going to go ask him because I'm not doing anything wrong. Hmm. I, I'm there every day. I remember when I was put in Sports Illustrated magazine. Really? I didn't top, know Yeah. Yep, in 1986, they put the top five defensive catchers. It was uh, Tony Pena, Lance Parrish, Benito Santiago, Sandy Alamo, and me. Huh. Yeah. I remember that. Well, so then, thankfully, finally, like you said, August 31st of 88, that Ted Power went over and you came over with Mark Lee. So the moment you found out you were coming to Kansas City, you had to have been just on cloud nine. Where were you at when you found that out? Uh, I was actually in Toledo. I was playing a game. <laughs> Pat Rouse was my manager. <laughs> so Pat Pat is, uh, you know, he wanted to get back to the booth. I could just see that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um, I'm playing in this game. It's like I'll never forget. It's got to be the seventh inning. I already had two home runs. And I really, two, I think it was two guys or three guys. Put on a show. So every time you get a home run, you get a free rip dinner. So I, have, I had two free rip dinners right back to back. So uh, next thing you know, the guy yelling behind home plate, go, Detroit's calling you up. It just came over the radio, which they did. They called me up, and they made me go over there for one day, and then they flew me to uh, Kansas City. I mean, to Minnesota to meet Kansas City. But it was funny because when Pat Corrales took me out of the game, I didn't even pay any mind to the guy that was yelling behind home plate. You know what I mean? You don't pay mind to people. They yell and stuff all the time. But they would listen to the Tigers game. And the Tiger Stadium is only 45 minutes away from Toledo. So I, he, um, Pat Crowles goes, Ray Plosh says, yeah, come over here. You're out of the game. I go, what did I do? <laughs> I went to like that. What did I do? He says, you're out of the game for right now. We'll talk about it. I said, I want to know what I did. He goes, don't worry about it. We'll talk about it later. So he says, Paul Phillips put the stuff on. So I, I, I take my stuff. I throw it down. I said, I don't know what the high did. I get two home runs, three, two out, two, three guys. One was a three-run home. I said, come on. So after the game's over, I go into the clubhouse. I take my stuff, throw it in my locker, and he says, "Plus, come in the office." So I walk in the office, and he says, 
So I got good news and bad news. I said, what do you want for us? I said, give me the bad news. So the bad news is you're not going to be here no more. <laughs> I said, where am I going? He says, you're going straight to the show. I said, with who? He says, it ain't with the Tigers. I said, are you kidding me? He goes, nah. He says, you just got traded. He says, you have to go to Detroit. I don't know why. And all this all the baloney. I, they called me up to Detroit for a day. I don't, I don't know why. Huh. Break my balls a lot. It was weird. Anyway, I had to take the next plane out um, the next day. But no, that that night, I had to tell my family goodbye, leave them behind. I had to get on a plane to get to Minnesota the next day. And I wound up leaving Detroit. And uh, I got on a plane. Let me see. I got it there at right for the end of the batting practice. I wound up showing up there. So they had my uniform all set up. It was really cool, man. Everything was all set up. Like if I was really been on the Royals team from day one. Yeah, and you had those whole lot. Yeah, those cool powder blues back then, man. I love those things. The red uniforms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we had all that set up nice. It was. I mean, I, I was like, you don't touch anything, man. Everything's taken care of for you in the big leagues. So whether you're a superstar or not. What did John Sherholz and John Wathen tell you then when you first came over? Charles didn't talk to me too much. He just come he come over to me and says, Hey, welcome aboard. Uh I heard a lot about your catching tools. I said, Yes. Uh I, you know, I, I consider myself a pretty decent catcher. I says, uh, I said the stats speak for itself. He said, I'm glad to hear that. He says, You're a confident player. I said, Well, I'm not so much confident, I'm a hard player, I don't. I said, I, I, I know what I can do. I just wish that I, they could have had me to really sooner. He says, Well, good luck and then that was the only time I talked to him. Once in a while, I would say hi to him, and we came by the clubhouse. Who was the other guy you mentioned? Oh, Duke Wathen. Oh, John Wathen. Well, when I got over there, John and Bob Schaefer, who was the coach, that's how I got over there. Schaefer went and got me. Oh. Because they had trouble with their catchers throwing people out. They had these guys, they had guys that couldn't throw people out. I mean, they had Larry Owen, Ed Hearn. Uh, Jamie Quirk was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> and, oh. Yeah, he was George Brett's buddy. That's why he hung around there. I tell it like it is, man. <laughs> so, you know, and when I saw these guys throw, I was like, are they kidding me? So when I wound up going out for infield practice, man, I was throwing the ball. They were like, yo, 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 take it easy. I want to break him. I think it was Brett's glove or Tyson's <laughs> glove, one of the two. I don't remember. I threw so hard. I threw the ball right to the women in their gloves. <laughs> <laughs> It was so funny, you know, like, hey, you got to take it easy, man. It's your first day. And I said, oh, oh, thank you. I'm like, yeah, right. I said, I'm going to show these guys what I got. That's so then uh, I, I didn't play the first day, but I was now the place is full of Minnesota, man. And Louis Aquino was my uh, was on the team. And Louis Aquino and I are very good friends, and we played winter ball together in Mayaguez, Puerto Rico. So when I when I sat next to him, it was pretty cool to talk to him and stuff. He used to tell me, yo, welcome to ball and all the stuff in Spanish and and we were talking. He was like, you could, we had to actually talk like about six inches apart because you couldn't hear anything. <laughs> That's how loud it was in the Metrodome. <laughs> I loved Logan yeah. Keto, man. That guy was the man. Actually, I'll talk about him later. But so then you got to KC. You appeared in five games. You got 11 at-bats. Uh, so then your first big league hit came in your first big league game. It was your second at-bat, September 8th of 88 off Greg Catteray. Do you still have that ball, and how special was that? Yeah. Yeah, that was very special to me because I, I remember my first at bat. I was so nervous <laughs> that I, I swing and miss at a ball that it almost hit me in the back of the foot. <laughs> <laughs> so I, 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 you know, then I wound up catching, which 
you know, and then I started I started talking to myself. I said, all right, just do what you do what you always have done. Now let your edge continue to play where you play, play your game. And that was all I had to say. My next time up, I almost took his head off. <laughs> and he gave me the ball. Line drive right beside his head. I'll never cool. forget that. Yeah, that's cool. What what was the what was the kind of the culture like in that clubhouse when you first came over? I mean, I'm sure it was a pretty fun clubhouse, right? Well, yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, you know, it was really nice when I when we came in. You, know, you couldn't talk to the players when we were out in the fields. I, I didn't really know anybody until I went over to Louis Aquino and then Danny Tarnable. But you know, Latin players always talk to one another. Right. You know, we always try to make each other feel comfortable. So I, you know, I introduced myself and Louis knew me, so we were laughing when they, we saw each other. We wanted to be roommates, and then um, when I got him in the clubhouse after we finished hitting, all as the guys were coming in, they they all shook my hand and said, "Welcome to the team," you know. So I thought that was pretty cool. Well, then you went into spring training of '89 at Baseball City. You'd make the opening day roster, but before we talk about that, what do you remember about Baseball City? Were you ever in that amusement park side, and, and what was that complex like? Yeah, I was in that amusement park a bunch of times because I lived in Lakeland, Florida. Oh. Which is about, about 35 minutes away. See, because when I was in the Tigers, I wanted to buy a house in spring training. Um, down in Lakeland, because it was spring training all the time. So that way my family, when they stayed behind when I started the season, they had a place to live. What was it like? So out. Huh? Well, you're the first person, first person I've ever talked to that actually went into the amusement park. Was it kind of cool, the boardwalk part? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was awesome, man. I, I, I had a great time going to that thing. Uh, all the roller coasters were unbelievable. That's when they came out with those roller coasters with the wheels on the on the, on the the rails. Yeah, that yeah. They used to fly. Yeah. That's when they started coming out with that, man. I jumped all over those things. Man. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was very, very beautiful. That was the baseball field, man. It was awesome. It was huh. awesome. I know they had that cool scoreboard there. So you were just one of uh, two rookies to make the opening day roster in 89 with mm-hmm. the Royals. How exciting was it to finally come north with the team? It was pretty exciting. It was it was tough. You know, I, I had a hell of a spring too, uh, with the Royals. I, I tore it up that year in eighty nine. Um, I think I, I think I might have hit like four home runs spring training. I had like twenty five RBI. I mean I did really, really well. And the same thing happened to me there. I'm waiting for a notice to find out what was going on and you remember Buck O'Neill? Of course. Buck O'Neill was one of the guys in the, that worked with the big league team and he was always in the meetings and stuff and Buck O'Neill always came up to me and said, son, you're a hell of a ball player. Um, keep working hard, he tells me. He says, uh, there'll be a decision made on you. I said, all right, thank you, sir. You know, And I just kept playing. And they told me the last day, when, when right before, or the day before, that the bus was going to leave. But they have a 18-wheeler tractor trailer there so the family could put all their stuff in there and they can drive it up to the ballpark. Uh-huh. But see, if they they never told me anything. So I, I bought it upon myself to put my stuff in that trailer and put my name on everything because I said, there's no way they're going to cut me or send me back. There's just no way. I had a spring that was phenomenal. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I did well the other positions that they put me in. So they would say, well, I'll back up Bob Coon or whatever with Mark, Mike McFarlane. So... That's what it wound up coming down to. And uh, so I didn't say anything. I went over to Buck O'Neill. And I said, Buck, the tractor trailer's coming tomorrow. They haven't told me I made this team or not. There's three days left. <coughs> Excuse me. And he goes, put your stuff on the trailer. Uh, you know, real quiet. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> he comes over to me. He says, put your stuff on the trailer. He says, 
I think you're going to be all right. Tomorrow's going to be the last day we make our decision. So was, and at that time, they wanted to either keep Pakoda or Brad Wellman. I don't know who was the other ones, and because they were worried about Kurt still on all this stuff. I, I just thought it was just a big thing that they just want to keep certain people around. Right. And uh, so there's a lot of politics involved, you know what I mean? Right, yeah. So they had Buck O'Neill go like this to me. He says, if I come by your locker and I wink at you and I just keep going by, you're all set. <laughs> just like that, he told me. So now I'm sitting down. Uh, Willie Wilson's about a couple lockers over for me. And he goes, hey, Rican. I said, yo, what's up? I go, they ain't telling you nothing yet? I said, no, nah, Willie. He said, man, that shit ain't right. Just like that, he says. <laughs> he says, they should have told you by now, man. We're going to be leaving in a day or so. He said, there ain't no way they can cut you, man. You had all of a spring. You're probably our best catcher. So all of a sudden, this is our first thing in the morning. It's like quarter to eight in the morning. And here comes Buck on me. I see him coming around the corner. And they had their meeting the night before. He looked at me. He just winked at me. <laughs> and he just kept on walking by. I didn't say nothing to nobody. And at the end of the day, I wound up going two for three that day with, uh, let me see if I remember. I know I was two for three. I don't remember exactly, exactly what happened, but I was two for three. So now, I guess they called Pakoda in the office. They sent them down to AAA. And then they called me in the office, and they just they, would, they gave me the silent treatment. So I just stood there because I already knew I was going to the show, but they didn't know that. Yeah. So I'm sitting there, you know, all right, what do you guys want to say? And they go, well, wait. And, and Duke goes like this to me. Well, well, Ray, we, we we've been thinking about you, and uh, we got to make a decision on you and everything. And uh, well, you made the team. I <laughs> saw. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm playing. I'm playing the politic role. And thank you very much, Skipper. And I, I went over to Schaefer. I winked at Schaefer. You know, on the side behind the other guy's back. You know, because Schaefer was like to my left, and the rest of the guys are to my right. So when I shook their hands, when I went over and shook Bob's hand. They were they had, they had my back to me, you know what I mean? So they couldn't see me wink at Shafe. <laughs> Shafe starts laughing. <laughs> so I, I want him going up north. And then uh, when we come out of the meeting, Willie Wilson looks at me. I go, I'm all set, brother. We're going north. He goes, ah, nice job, man. You deserve to go, man. You had a hell of a spring. You prove you can play. That's great. So now I was expecting to play. I didn't want that. You know, that didn't work out, man. Yeah, well, you... So you make one one appearance before they send you back to Omaha, April thirteenth. Then they brought you back two weeks later on April twenty eighth, and you were you did some good things that year. First of all, your first extra base hit came uh, in Cleveland, a double. The next night, your first major league home run was off of Scott Bales. What do you remember about that? That one I don't remember. Really? Yeah. Who was it off Scott? Scott Bales, a lefty, pitched for the. It was around forever, Cleveland, and bounced around with Texas oh. for a long time. Scott Bales. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. Damn, I don't even remember that one. Really? <laughs> I stumped you. Yeah, I, I thought I got one off in Candiotti. It might have been Scott Bales then. Unless was, I... that, was it in Cleveland? Yeah, it was in Cleveland, yeah. You, I think yeah, that... I remember that home run, so it was off the lefty then. Yeah, I think you. I think your double was off Candiotti. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. You're right. You're probably right. Now, mm-hmm. something else memorable that year. So for me, so July 21st of 89, just a normal day for you, but you replaced George Brett at first base. You got two at-bats against Cleveland. The Royals won. Louis Aquino got the win. And a young fan named Dave, me, was eight at my first game, dude. So you became uh, you know, one of my favorite players. You and I were talking the other day about this. You also went to your first game when you were eight years old. What do you remember about your first game? 
Well, when I went to my first game, um, my dad, you know, gathered up money. We took the three brothers to the, our first uh, major league game because Roberto Clemente was coming in to play against the Mets. So that's our idol. And uh, I'm sitting there, and it was, like, so beautiful. We, we got there early, so we were able to go down to the edge. And I didn't care whose autograph I got. I just wanted to get some autographs. So Bob Appledaka from the Mets gives me a baseball. He signs it. Of course, he couldn't give me a nice ball from the bull, I mean, from the batting practice field. He had to give me some old ball that he had. I didn't care. He signed it. He gave it to me. I was all excited and everything. So now we're watching the game. Of course, Clemente puts on a show. He throws out Wayne Garrett, which is uh, Smokey Garrett's brother. Yeah. Who was a third base coach for us. Throws his brother out on a line drive from the right field wall at third base, trying to stretch the double into a triple. Wow. He gets three hits that day, two doubles and a single. Clement, I never forgot, I was just a kid. And as the game's going on, I look up at my dad and I said, I go like this, Papi, I said, I am going to be one of these guys one of these days. My father looks down at me and goes, oh, you are? Huh? Okay, I got to see this. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I I think I might have said the same thing, and I never made it out of high school, so at least one of us did. Oh, man. Yeah, exactly. So my dad now, you know, Garrett's a soul. He was, he was so ecstatic, man. Uh, that's great. I actually mailed you a baseball card, like, in the early 90s, and you signed it for me. I've still got your autograph on an upper deck card. It's pretty cool. Oh, cool. Yeah. I mean, wow. I mean, I, I meant to dig up some more of your stuff and see if I still have them. So, now, besides catcher and first base, you, we mentioned that, but you played third base, outfield, you pinch ran that year, you came back up on September 2nd, and the last day of that season in Oakland, your first multi-hit game. Do you remember that one? Um, October 2nd of 89. Oh, that had to be in Oakland. Yeah, it was. Last game of the year, yep. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. Because yeah. we were in contention that year. Yeah, the damn Oakland would never lose. And there was no wild card. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We would have been in the playoffs, man. We got. I, that's why I think that Oakland was different than our, than, than our, than our manager. Yeah. Tony LaRusso bought an Eckersley no matter what in that ninth inning, man. Yeah. And if it was a safe situation, fine. If it was a three-run lead, Fine. He didn't even care. If he wanted to make sure we were gonna, they were going to win, they brought him in. And that's why I felt where, where Walker made that mistake. But he didn't bring Montgomery in at the end, towards the end of the season. We had a three-game series with him, and we needed to win two out of the three games, uh, if I remember correct, to yeah. get into the playoffs. Man, you guys were we good were, that year, too, 92 and 70. Yeah we, were, yeah, we were close. We got knocked out at the end of the year. God. I remember that. I was heartbroken. I was like crying. <laughs> yeah. So, so I remember that game. Yeah, I got I got I remember those hits that I got in Oakland. Yeah, I love playing at the um, Coliseum there. I love that stadium. Except when you hit a foul ball and get caught because there's, you know, two football. Oh, they got a lot of foul moves there, <laughs> right? I know. I know. Yeah. Uh, so the whole nineteen ninety season, pretty much you were at the major league level outside of four brief games in Omaha. So Real quick about Omaha, because I grew up in Nebraska, you know, going to games at Rosenblatt. What what do you remember about Rosenblatt Stadium in Omaha? Well, um, I I remember just going down. Um, Sal Rendy was the manager, mm-hmm. which uh, I don't know. We just didn't click right away, see eye to eye. Um, I got sent down. I went down with a nice shirt that didn't have a collar on it, and they wanted to find me right off the bat. So. Jeez. I'm like, what is going on here? And he's like, well, you got to have a collar on. I said, well, they didn't tell me that. I said, I'm in AAA. I mean, I'm, I'm coming to my home field. It's like guys usually just come, you know, casual. You know what I mean? Right, right. On a road trip, you have a suit on. You know, and then when you get to the ballpark after you go through the airport, you, 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 
dress casual, you know, nice slacks, something like that. So I get a fine. I go down, I play a few games or whatever down there, and I was just, all I did was get myself ready so I get called back up. Yeah. Yeah. I got sent down because Kurt Stillwell got hurt, and they had to call up Pakoda so they could have an extra infielder because they weren't sure about Kurt Stillwell. So once once he healed, then I got called back. They sent Pakoda back down, I got called back up. But as soon as I got back to the big leagues, I never forget, John Wapping goes, what happened? You go to AAA first, then you got a fine. I said, I skip it. I, I went in there with a polo shirt without a collar on it, and he says, you're getting fined. They're not even like, how you doing? My name is Sal Redney. I'm the manager. <laughs> I mean, that's how you treat a big league ball player? You're right. So I, I just picked that. No, that's ridiculous, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I, I told him I paid the fine. I said, it's the burn center because you have to send it to your charity. So I told him to send it to the burn center in New York City. That's where they sent the fine to. Good God. <laughs> yeah. So, 1990 then, you had some amazing and special moments that year. Uh, mm-hmm. fir- first of all, basically the whole season at the Major League level. I mean, how was that in its own? That was pretty awesome, man. I mean, um, I, I remember, you know, when you're, you're when you're the 25th guy on the team, and I, I always felt that I should have way more playing time than what I got. Um, I remember when uh, in that, that year, that's the year that Bob Boone got hurt. Um, he broke his finger, and I forget that, catching a pop-up. So McFarlane, he could probably catch you three, four days in a row, and then he needed to take a break. I couldn't wait for that break to come because I, I knew I would be able to do something to show the, show the manager that I'm going to be playing at least once or twice a week because Booney was out for six weeks. And uh, I, that's the time I wound up having the uh, Grand Slam was one deal, and I had nine RBIs that one week. I was almost played a week that one week, and – and the fans are calling, like, you know, they have the pregame show. You can hear him down in the clubhouse. Right. And they're, they're like, asking him, why aren't you putting this kid to catch every day? I mean, he throws people on every day. And then and when Walton says, oh, he's not an everyday player. So then he came over and he talked to me. And they said, oh, they said, you're not an everyday player. I said, well, look at my minor league stats. Uh, I don't miss many games. I play almost every day, almost the whole season. And, and the only time I was hurt was one year, 1984, when I hurt my knee. Other than that, I was fine. So if you're not an everyday player, what is that show? Stats don't lie. I told the I told the, the guy that was doing the interview with me. Huh. So it came out on the radio and everything. I so love it. It wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't like I, I I don't think I was just treated fair at all, you know. And I could just see that there was more favoritism towards Mike McFarlane. Um, and uh, you know I just because Bob Boone was actually there to try and help the younger catchers. Meanwhile, never talked to me about any hitters, about anything. I used to do everything on my own when I played. Uh, so I just know oh, it's going to be like that. Well, I just like I've always done: be ready and be prepared and watch the game. I used to watch the game, like the first three innings, four innings. I would watch the game from the dugout, and then I would go to the bullpen. So that way, if they needed a reliever to get ready, I was down there. But I would continue to watch the game from the outfield, watch the guys hitting from the other team. So I knew how I came in the game. I always came in the game when the game was on the line, if they put me in the game. It was the pitch run for Bob Boone, which is going to be the seventh and eighth inning. And then I wound up catching the stopper, which was Mike, well, Mark Davis at the time. Remember that? Of course. I'm, how can I How so. can I forget that depressing season? <laughs> <laughs> Mark, Mark and Storm Davis came. That's one of the questions I had for you. So let's get to that one right now. So, you, you know, Sports Illustrated calls you guys the World Series champs preseason. You have the highest payroll in baseball. You got the you know the Davis guys, and then it just kind of fell apart. What, I mean, what was that like? Was that not real fun to be around at that point? Well, 
Well, I just think it was managerial decisions, I thought. Um, you know, when he, like I said, you know, that was the year that I, I will, I would love to see Montgomery come in the game more, more often, or the year before I stayed in the United to get started. Then in 1990, they started bringing Mark Davis right away, and he was throwing hard, but he, his location wasn't there. And I just think he was getting hit, and then it's like anything else, once you start getting hit, he just came from San Diego Padres and had 44 saves, which back then was huge, which is huge today. But um, he uh, he lost it, like, confidence-wise, I want to say. And then he started to get erratic on the mound because he, he couldn't get the guys out. Yeah. God. Well, well, one, guy, one, one guy I can tell you who hates him is Wade Boggs. <laughs> oh, really? How come? <laughs> Wade Boggs used to see him come from the bullpen. And he was pissed because he could not touch that nasty curveball. <laughs> I, I remember the time Boggs, we played in Royal Stadium. Davis came in. I mean, yeah, Mark Davis came in, threw him three nasty curveballs. He buckled Boggs on two, and Boggs just took the third one. He took his bat and threw it to the backstop and walked <laughs> off, went out to first, uh, third base. <laughs> then the following week, you know, you go when you go to your away games, you go back and play the same team. You know what I mean? Right. So we, we go to Fenway, I'm catching again, <laughs> and Box is swinging the bat over there on the on-deck circle, and, and they're going to do a pitch and change, and, you, and he's swinging away. When he looks up, he sees Davis coming, and he just puts his head down and shakes, and he goes, sorry, shit. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay. laughs> Same results, man. Three pitches, goodbye. <laughs> he never even took the bat off his shoulder, man. <laughs> he cursed everything out, man. It was so funny. <laughs> oh my god! I was laughing uh, so hard, man. I tell you, it was so funny. <laughs> That's great. How, how are the? I mean, the Royals drew like two million fans back then. How 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 good were the Royals fans to you back then? The fans were great with us. Uh, I always do whatever I could do for the kids uh, because to me, I I always remembered when I went to my first big league game. I had an autograph from a guy with a uniform on. I just made my day. I took that ball to the, to the school, showed it off to my friends, you know what I mean? So every time, you know, the Royal fans, I, I thought they were great. I went to a lot of charity things. I did a lot of things for, the, you know, for Kansas City um, people. And I also did a lot for the kids at, at the ballparks. I would I would sign as many autographs as I could for young, you know, little kids, like 8-year-old kids, 10-year-old kids. And you could just see you sign the ball. They take off running, go see their father up in the stands. So you know what I mean. It was just awesome, man. Yeah. And that's that's one thing I tried to do was give back to the fans. Yeah. What now? What about Bo Jackson? We got to talk about him. What what kind of guy was he? Bo was pretty cool. Bo was uh he was a cool guy. He was pretty much laid back. He was in his own little world. I mean, you know, he talks to talk to you. You know, talk to the guys. Had little conversations here and there. Um. You know, he was he was cool with me. He didn't have any problems. I I would talk to him, and we wanted, you know, getting to know each other and stuff like that. And and we wanted, you know, talking about futures and stuff like that. And, and I and I just remember talking to him. me and Willie Wilson. Talked to him. I I, I will not lie to you. It was the end of the season, September, and uh, we go into this boat. You need to quit the football and take a buyout. Go ahead and get yourself a nice big contract for the baseball, man. You know, that's what our Zach words were to him. Huh. And he tells us, no, nah, I still love playing football. I said, yo, man, but you can get hurt in football, man. You, baseball, you getting hurt is pretty much not as hard as it is in football. Football, 
you hit it hard, man. You could be done. And, and unfortunately, that was the year he got hurt. Do you have a favorite Bo Jackson memory where you witnessed something and you're like, no way that just happened? Like, what's the most amazing oh, thing? Oh, yeah. I can tell you right now, I have more than one, I have more than one with him. Oh, yeah, let's hear him. Uh, I, 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 I was at a game where he climbed the wall in Baltimore. <laughs> yes. I was like, oh, man, he's going to run into this wall. And then next thing you know, you see him catch this ball and then just jump up and run along the wall and come back down. He's like a Spider-Man or something. Yeah. That was amazing to me. Um, I was also kind of pissed at him at that game because we were losing by a run. And when Bo got off first base, it was an automatic triple. You know what I mean? There's no way you were going to stop this guy. And um, he was upset with himself because he hit a ground ball, two opposite short, and Kyle Ripken threw him out. And I'm saying, man, and he got he was thrown out by a step. Earlier in the game, he had a one-hopper to cover, and he beat it out. Huh. That was early in the game. So I was like, man, boy, you could have made that into a triple, but, you know, whatever. He, you know, whatever. He didn't make it all the way. But the other one was uh, in Minnesota. I saw him, uh, was it Frank Feil or I'm trying to think who it was. Shucks. Oh, was it Jack Morris? Was a lefty? Viola was a lefty, right? Yeah, Frank Viola was a lefty. I don't know if it was actually him. It could have been him, but I don't remember who the pitcher was. But he had an 0-2 count. And the guy threw him a fastball about as high as his head away. <laughs> it wasn't even close to a strike. Oh, hit it off the top of the bag, off the seats <laughs> over the bag. The right field. Right field line. It was like three feet in from the line, and it hit the seats above the baggie. Everybody looked at each other. You gotta be kidding me! <laughs> he was ridiculous. I love that guy. Oh, uh, he was ridiculous. The other one was who was it that he threw off from left field? Oh, I Harold, that Harold Reynolds, right? Harold Reynolds of Seattle. Yeah, I was man when he threw that ball because I knew he had a cannon because he always used to brag about my arm. You know what I mean? Yeah. He goes, uh, because he's study he goes, uh, Puerto Rican. Uh, you think you can throw uh harder than me? <laughs> I says, uh. Well, one of these days maybe we're on a different team. We'll see where you steal. <laughs> he goes, uh, you'll never get me. <laughs> well, now we're in Seattle. Harold is going all the way around. He's coming. Ball picks up that ball from the wall, man. Fires it home, man. I'm like, oh, my God. And we're watching this now in Seattle. We're on the uh, first base side back then. I don't know what they are now, but I was in the kingdom back then. Yeah. I used to give those guys tickets to the fire uh, the firehouse because it was right next to the stadium. It was off the block. So he throws his ball home, and we're looking at it. It's coming in. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's going to it's gonna beat him. It's going to pull the beats. And we're like, holy shit, he did it. I can't believe it. And we were just all like, that's amazing, man. This guy. Then we started saying he's unhuman. <laughs> he was it, man. He was his own. What about George Brett? Do you have any favorite memories of George? Yeah, George was a pretty funny guy. George is, uh, he loved his, he loved, we used to, his, his, his uh, nickname is Lou, you know that? Yeah, no, actually I didn't know that. Yeah, he's, he loves the Looney Tunes. He always used to wear the, the Looney Tunes shirt. You know, with Porky the Pig and uh, <laughs> Donald Duck, and he loved all of them. So he used to have shirts, a bunch of shirts like that on the, underneath his uniform. So we used to go, that's, that's why we used to call him Lou. 
But George Soul was a good guy. He was pretty cool with me. I remember when I went to Minnesota, when I got traded, and I wanted to meet him in Minnesota. He came right. He was one of the first guys to shake my hand. He said, "Hey, welcome aboard, kid." I said, "Thank you very much, George. It's a pleasure being here." And you know, we would say hi and talk a little bit, but not you know, not much. Cool guy. But when I hit my grand slam, he was he was funny on the on the uh, on the interview, man. What did he say? <laughs> he said. That's going to be the best thing you'll ever see Ray hit in his whole life. <laughs> <laughs> and then they interview Bo, and Bo's like going, oh, my God. That, 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 that'd be the last person we thought he hit. <laughs> <laughs> I go, thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, so let's talk about that. So that was, speaking of Mark Davis, so you came in uh, to pinch run for Mike McFarlane in the – it was, I guess, May 14th, 1990. It was the ninth inning. So you pinch run uh, after he hits a mm-hmm. double. Then it goes to extras. Mark Davis gets him in the 10th. Your first at bat of the game is against four-time All-Star closer Jeff Reardon. You go left center. It's on YouTube. I watched it yesterday. Grand oh, yeah. slam, dude. What was what was that like? That was pretty awesome because you got you to go back before that when I pinch run for McFarland. Did you see the play at the plate? No. Oh, you got to see it. You, it's, a, it's on that – that video YouTube you probably when I had a collision at the plate with Tony. Oh Payne. yeah, I didn't know that was the same. That was the same game. Same game, man. I tried to kill him, man. Take the <laughs> ball out of his glove, man. His I did brother, see that. His brother, his brother was my roommate in Detroit. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yes, I I know him very well, but he he thought that uh, we're friends on the field. I said, no, you don't pay me. <laughs> so uh, I tried to knock the ball out of his glove, and I wound up. Uh, it was funny because. The game was, uh, I think we were either, I don't remember if the game was tied or we were losing by two runs. And then uh, it was second and third, and Willie Wilson was hitting in front of me. So Willie was ahead on the count, three and one. So Tony looks over to see who's on deck. When he saw me, he's pretty much like, just just, just throw Willie up a waist pitch so you can put him on and let's take this kid here. And that's when I said, oh, yeah, that's what you're going to do. And I always said, all right, let's see what's going to happen when I get up there. This is me. I'm talking to myself. I'm, I'm already reading his mind. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> so now I get up at the plate. I look at him, you know, because I know his whole family are in there. I say, hey, what's up? How are you doing? Uh, first pitch was a ball. And I think the second pitch was a ball. And Tony tried to frame it on the outside. And then uh, I said, oh, here it comes, baby. Got no place to put me, two outs. You put it right down the middle, man. I just crushed it. <laughs> yeah, I I'm, just crushed it. <laughs> I love the little, uh, it, like the little bat flip. You knew you got it. I, I love the flip. You're oh, so yeah. confident. <laughs> I didn't even feel it come off the bat, man. <laughs> yeah, you didn't even <laughs> watch it. No, I was, I was so excited. I, didn't, <laughs> I, I looked at it after I touched first base. I looked out there. I could see it going up over the wall. And if you remember, Bob Shaver gives me five, five right from first base. He was so excited for me, you know. That was really, that's when it all, that's when I really broke out because right after that home run, I wound up catching again because that's he was out injured after that. So it was only Mike McFarlane and I. So I wound up catching against the Yankees. The Yankees came into town after that. Oh. And I wound up catching against the Yankees. I was three for four, two doubles and uh, four RBIs. And uh, um, three for four, two doubles, four RBIs and a base hit. Well, so I wound up getting almost nine RBIs in a week between the home run and the Grand Slam, the Yankees, and then we went into Boston 
that same week, and I wound up getting another two more RBIs. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. Uh, so, speaking of the Yankees, July 18th of 1990, you're at Yankee Stadium. I'm assuming you probably have family in attendance, and you take Chuck oh, Chuck Carey deep, that. man. How, how how special was that? Dude, that was unbelievable, man. I had, I had not only my family, I had 200 tickets that day. I had my wife's family there, uh, my family, which is big, all my high school friends, all my family friends. I mean, it was just like there had to be about – I would say at least 800 people there. Wow. Between all the schools and everything, college. And then the fire department showed up with the fire trucks. <laughs> yeah, the guys from my firehouse, they all went over there. They told them they had a special inspection. They talked to the deputy. They said, you right, go over there at a service. And they told them what the occasion was. I had a couple of policemen there from our priest in our neighborhood. And then I wound up getting up. I don't know what that bat it was, but First I knew Chuck Carey. First at bat, I knew Chuck Carey from Detroit. He's pitched for Detroit. And I know when he gets 0-2 on everybody, he always loves to go away on, the, on right-handers. So uh, I want to say Rick Sarone was catching, and he had me 0-2. And, and I said, and, and I could really see the pattern that he's already thrown Tartable and, and Jack Jackson. He 0-2 when he got ahead, he always went away with the fastball. So when he had me 0-2, I sat in the box where I normally would sit, and then throw him the sign. He looked in, and I moved up on the plate, not forward towards the pitcher's mound. I moved towards first base, right, about another three inches. So now the fat part of my bat was actually about five inches past the outside part of the plate. <laughs> so when he threw that fastball, I knew it was coming. I crushed it, man. <laughs> I hit the monuments on him. Three-run home run, and the Yankee fans were like. They're not saying anything because they're losing now. And this whole section is screaming over on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> they have my name with, like, like a bed sheet, you know, Welcome Ray Palacios from Brooklyn Red Hood. We love you, Uncle Ray, my nieces. And then uh, when I hit the Grand Slam and then they found out that I was a kid from Brooklyn because Phil Rizzuto loves kids from Brooklyn. And uh, the, the fans gave me a big uh, round of applause and stuff. So I thought that was pretty cool. I wanted to get an interview when I was at Royal Stadium with uh, with um, Phil Rizzuto. Oh no way! I, yeah, because I wanted. I tell you, I had the game when I was three for four. I, I beat the Yankees myself. <laughs> um, I, I, nobody else was really hitting that well that night. Those guys got a few hits, but I, I drove in the four runs. And Phil Rizzuto found out I was a kid from Brooklyn. He's from Brooklyn. And he was always wanting to interview me, and so it's a, it's, a, it's actually being taped. So I I, um, I said hi to all the guys at the firehouse, my family, and everything on the on the television. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm doing the interview with him, and he goes, "Well, you know, how do you feel? You know, the way you're hitting right now, you're doing a hell of a job. You already got seven RBIs in like three, four days." He says, uh, "You're a hell of a catcher. You come out of Brooklyn, New York. I'm a Brooklyn native, blah blah." And uh, you know, I just. I just did a little interview with him. And, you know, it's just great, man. Somebody that came from the south side of Brooklyn and a rough neighborhood and makes it. It's pretty cool, I thought, you know. Yeah. I've been blessed. Because I can tell you that. Yeah, well, so the end of 1990, Nelson Liriano is trying to rip off second on you and your your shoulder pops. What happened with that? Um, The game was... uh. Nelson Luriano leads off and hits a double, and I forget. And um, they're trying to bunt him over. Manny Lee's trying to bunt him over to third. 
or Manny Lee misses the bunt, and I take the ball, I want to throw it out Liriano from my niece while I'm getting up. Because he got caught leaning towards third when uh, Manny Lee missed the bunt. So I caught him, and I just let it go. I threw him out, and I felt a little pop in the front of my shoulder. I'm like, oh, what the hell was that noise? And the umpire I don't play was uh, Barnett. He heard it, too. I was like, ah, don't worry about it. So I kept throwing and throwing, you know, and the next thing you know, by the ninth inning, because that happened in the seventh and by ninth inning, I could just feel it swelling up inside there. So I knew I had something wrong. So then I, you know, after the game, I just iced it and stuff. I started trying to take care of myself, and then it kept getting worse and worse. And I said, ah, I went up tearing my labrum, which is really no big deal. It's like tearing a towel, and you have the freighted ends on the towel. Uh, and they go in and they shave off those freighted ends because they, they're rubbing in between the joint. So it, it, when it does, it, it inflames the, uh, the the muscle in there. Okay. And then it gives, yeah. So I, then that was the end of that. And that's when it came to the end. Well, so when did you did you have the surgery for that then? Yeah, I had the surgery right after the 1990 season. They wound up calling up Brett Maine. Yeah, yeah. And he wound up catching, and I was like, you know, I could have kept catching, but they just wanted me to, you know, they were already out of the season, so they let him go ahead and play. And at the end of the season, they released me. And, well, before they released me, they sent me to, to Dr. Um, I forgot his name. I don't know if it was Dr. Taiji, I think his name might have been. I'm not sure. No, that's the guy from Detroit. I forgot the guy's name. Anyway, he does the operation and everything for the ball players. The team doctor there. Okay. And they want to send me to him, and they want to fix my shoulder. And then they released me at the end of the season. Well, at least they fixed it. I mean, what were your emotions upon being released? Were you kind of bummed, or I mean, what were you feeling? No, I was. I was kind of. I wasn't bummed. I was more pissed off than anything. Yeah. You know, I thought. I thought that they just gave me a raw deal. Yeah. And I said, all right, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get a job somewhere else. So and then, then I continue on to staying in shape and being ready. And I want to say I went back to Florida. And then the following year, um, I wound up going to Milwaukee, spring training in Arizona. And I was with the Brewers, and I knew they needed to catch us. So my agent got me to go over there, and I wasn't treated fair at all over there. And uh, my arm was hurting me, but I didn't say nothing to nobody. And I knew that the surgery I had wasn't a major surgery. So I don't know why it was hurting me when I had scar tissue. So I kept throwing the balls. We're working out, you know, loosening up our arms and I'm throwing. And it's hurting. And I'm saying, you know what? I'm going to throw this ball hard one more time. I don't care if my arm goes out or not. I am not lying to you, Dave. I threw that ball so hard and, you, and I heard a snap. This pop. And after that, it was like my arm was totally back. It was full of scar tissue. Just ripped it right off. Ugh. My arm was back. So I wound up doing pretty good with them, and then they released me. And I said, you know what? They just didn't want me here, man. So, you know, I, it was rough going home. I was, you know, was crying on the plane. That's when it really hit me. Because now I got a, a, a baby, and I got my wife. And I got, you know what I mean? I need to find me a job. So I wound up getting in the fire department in Florida. And I went and I joined the fire department down there. I took the test and everything, and I got in. And uh, I wanted to work for them for two two years or something like that, uh, 91, 92, and a little bit 93. And then um, I got picked up by the Orioles, spring training. Yeah. And I wound up, yep, I wound up going with the Baltimore Orioles, big league camp. 
Johnny Oates gave me a call. They needed a backup catcher bad. And Johnny Oates knew who I was from the days when I played AAA. And plus he knew me when I was in the business with the Royals. So uh, he wanted to give me an opportunity, which he did. I did well. And uh, I, I go north with him, and uh, all of a sudden my shoulder just popped again. Same thing. So I strained it. He sent me down to AAA. And then uh, I went to AAA, and, you know, they just pretty much just gave me a little rehab or whatever, and then on that, this ain't working out. They're going to release me. And they did. Once that happened, then I said, okay, it's time for me to make a different move. i got to do my fireman's career. Uh, all this time, I couldn't go back to FDNY in New York City because you got to be 29 years old to get on a job. So... I stayed in contact with the guys. I used to go back and ride and go to parties and things like that. But then I said, you know what, I, I need to go get me a job and take care of my family. So I went and took the test in Rochester, New York. It's just as busy as New York City. And uh, I wound up doing really well. I got a 96 on it. Great shape, ready to go. So uh, in the meantime, that was in 96 I did that. So I'm doing um, working for the county, uh, doing like ground uh, ground equipment operator. I, I, I was able to run like heavy equipment. I was trained in that, doing construction and growing up and all that. So I got in doing that just to support my family. Then I got a phone call for the strike year, 95. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I got called up by uh, Dave Dombrowski. The Marlins, right? GM. Yep. It was the Marlins. He's with the Tigers now. He's their GM in the big leagues. Right, right, right. Yeah, I saw him in the elevator over there when I was in Detroit uh, about four years ago, I think it was. I'm in the elevator. He looks at me and goes, Ray Palazzo? I said, what's up, Dave Zimbabwe? How you doing, man? <laughs> he goes, what the hell are you doing? I said, oh, I'm here with the firemen from Detroit. They're my buddy. So I, we had tickets, so I came to the game. He said, go on upstairs and meet the guys. Uh, what's his name? Well, I, Gates Brown was upstairs in the, in the uh, players' lounge upstairs. You know, the only special people go up there. Come on, I think it was uh, Keith Brown was up there, Larry Hernan, a couple guys. They had like some some old timers thing or something. I don't think it was a game. It was just something honoring the guys. So I got to see the guys. They were laughing and stuff with me. And uh, um, we said I lost base. Where was I? Just we'll go up the elevator with Dave Dabrowski. That's that's cool that he remembered you. Yeah, yeah, he remembered me right away when he saw me. <laughs> but anyway, so now I. I stayed doing the jobs for the county and stuff, so Dave Dombrowski calls me up in 95, and I was in great shape. I, I never let myself get out of shape. He says, Ray, um, call me as soon as you can. Uh, I need to talk to you, Dave Dombrowski, in the Florida Marlins. So my wife says, Marlins, just call you. So all right, wait till I get out of work. So I got out of work about 4 o'clock. I called Dave up. He says, uh, hey, Ray, how you doing? Good. He says, listen, man, we have a strike here. I got some major league players on this team, but I need a major league catcher. He says, if you're in great shape, I'll give you a job. Just, it looks like we're going to open the season with the strike players. I says, well, let me tell you this, Dave. I says, I get 30000 a year at my job. If I'm just going to leave like that, I need to be guaranteed contract saying I'm going to get paid 30000 for spring training. And then we'll negotiate another contract. He says, no problem. <laughs> That's how bad it was. Because hmm. he had some of these guys come by, like fly by nights. I really think that they were going to be ball players yeah. at one time. Yeah. And all of a sudden they said, oh, this is open field. Open field. Let me go over and work now. <laughs> Get off the field, please. <laughs> so, you know, they had the actual coaching staff. Ray Latchman was the manager. Jose Morales, it's like a cousin of mine. He was the hit instructor. 
Rusty Coons, I think, was the first base ah, coach. Rusty, Rusty's our first base coach. I love that guy. Yeah, man. yeah, yeah. Um, so um, I go to spring. I go down to the spring training. He says, as long as you pass everything, we'll guarantee you the thirty grand. I said, okay. I signed an agreement. He sent me a plane ticket. I flew down there the next day. I tear up the physical agility without a problem. Run the treadmill for 10, 12 minutes, football. Go out on the field, throwing, hitting. Oh, man. The guy, Dave, looking at mom, he goes, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to play it in the spring training games. I did really well and everything. It came down to the, the last day. I think it was uh, March 31st or maybe April 1st, I don't remember. The opening day was going to start the following day, so they stopped the spring training ends. They had they had a team set to go uh, to play in Florida, and uh, they wanted to cancel the season. And, uh, you know, Dave came right downstairs and gave me my check. I was the only guy that got paid. Real? Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I was the only guy that got paid. So um, I don't know if you remember this kid named Jim Kramer. He was a catcher. For the Expos back in the day, he came. He was my backup catcher. Did he play for the Braves too? He might have. I don't know. If it's or I, might, I might be thinking of Kramer's. There's a Jimmy Kramer's. Maybe yeah. that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, this guy's name was Jim. Oh, okay. Kramer. He, he went for the Expos back in the day when we were young. So he did a little stint with them in the big leagues, like maybe a month or two. So he was like my backup for the Florida Marlins. So anyway, make long story short, we went up uh, shutting the season down. They called me in the office. They go, listen. We don't know how this is going to work out right now, but we actually want you to be a backup catcher for Benito Santiago. <laughs> nice. I, I said, okay, cool. So they said, let us have a meeting about it, and uh, let's see what we're going to do. Because, you know, you crossed the line. And I said, so what? There's other guys out there that play. I can't remember their names. I also crossed the line. They were big league players. And um, they had their meeting and everything, and he goes, they listen, it looks like right now, Big league, actual big league teams are going to come back and they're going to start working on everything. And they said, well, we don't think it would be a really good idea right now for you to be, you know, working out with the team. We have a very high interest in you. We don't know how they're going to react because you crossed the line and we don't want to have a whole conflict here. So they said, you know, just go home, stay in shape, and uh, we'll let you know. So they called me like about two or three weeks later and they said, you know what, it ain't going to happen. So that was the end of my career right there. So after that happened, then I was getting prepared to get ready to get in the fire department. How tough was that, man? You put your whole life into that. Was that was that kind yeah. of that was that was tough. I actually had to go back to school so I can get my mind prepared for taking tests and all that. Went to school for four months, uh, two nights a week, and right from the after the four months is when the test was going to be given in '96 because I've been out of school for over 20 years already, right, or more. So I had to prepare my mind, you know, square root of this, decimal movement, just to refresh myself. Because they have, they had like 15 questions on just math. I want a piece and all that stuff by going to take these classes. So I want to uh, score like a 96 on the on the, on the the civil service exam. So I was going to be in the first class right off the new list. So that was that was awesome, man. I got called by a guy, because he knew I played baseball. He said, now you can play softball for us. <laughs> yeah, I was reading about that. Oh, man, I, I, I did not enjoy the softball at all. <laughs> <laughs> the beer league. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, yeah. It was like, 
I was so far ahead of these guys. I was like, <laughs> I was aggravating watching these guys play. <laughs> Throwing the ball on the wrong bases. <laughs> not running. Oh, man. I'm still in the baseball mode, you know? <laughs> yeah, you're busting it out there and gunning guys out. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm good. throwing people out. They're dropping the ball. <laughs> I'm playing left field. I'm throwing bullets on the catchers dropping the ball. I'm like, what? Are you kidding? Oh, my God. Oh, and then no. it just dawned on me. It just dawned on me. I said to myself, listen, you got to remember they didn't play where you played. Yeah. That's what I had to say to myself. Once I said that, I said, squad on the phone with the brothers. And that's when I was able to enjoy at least five years of softball with them. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was tough when I first played. I got about four last questions about baseball, and then I'll let you go. Sure. You've been great with your time, by the way. Thank you so much. That's um, fine. So, last few things here about the Royals. So, when you think back to Kansas City, then uh, what part of town did you live in? Do you remember anything about the city itself? Yeah, yeah I, 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 I used to go down with my Harley. We used to go down. I had a couple of people that I met in uh, uh, from Royal Stadium. There was uh, one. This guy's name was his name was Bud Bronson. I his number is not any good anymore, but he was a very nice guy. We became good friends. And he used to ride, so I, I rode, and so did Steve Farr. And we used to ride all the time and go downtown and look around, you know, go to different places, uh, you know, places to eat, you know, places to go out and stuff. And then where I lived, it was in Overland Park. Okay, yeah. Um, that's where, I guess, Kaufman and I forgot the other owner's name, I think they owned the complex that was out there. Oh, okay. That was built, yeah. So all the players stayed there. Okay. The wives are pretty safe. It was a very nice area. That makes sense. Did you get some good uh, Casey barbecue while you were here? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep, me and the wife used to go downtown. That's the name of the doggone place, what it was called. It's been so long. Uh, Gates, they used to, Jackson. They used to have the Rip Fest down there, too. Oh, yeah. The American Royal? Is that what you're talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 dude. That's yeah. good stuff. Have you uh, stayed in touch with any of your old Royals teammates, like Louis Aquino or any of those guys? No, you know what? I would love to find out where Louie is. I, I haven't. I, last time I heard, he was in Miami. And I'm going back 18 years ago. Yeah. I don't know what he's doing. And you told me you found Israel Sanchez? Yeah, man. I, I finally found Israel Sanchez. He is, uh, his daughter is actually like an all Big Ten softball player at University of Illinois, and he lives in Chicago now. Oh, wow. So I'm hopefully going to be getting in touch with him soon. And I got in touch with, uh, you you're one of my top five players of all time, and Brad Wellman. Thank I ta- you. I talked to him a little bit ago too. <laughs> What's Brad doing? He's, he lives in San Diego, California, somewhere, don't he? Yeah, San Francisco. He's uh, he's, San Francisco. That's it. He's got a uh, a baseball school, and here's something you may or may not know. You know his son plays on the NHL. Oh yeah, I love. I play hockey. Yeah, apparently. Apparently, the story was that he told me back in '89, you guys were in Boston, and him and I think it was Seitzer on an off day went over to the Boston Bruins, and he and Brad couldn't skate. Like they were making fun of him, and he's all mad about it. So he learned how to skate, made his family do it, and his son ended up, you know, doing that. And they sent him away to school in Minnesota, where he could play more competitive hockey, and he actually made it. How yeah. cool is that? From California, of all places. Wow, is it, is it, is it an NHL? Yeah, he's back and forth. He, I don't know if he's in it right now, but he has been the last few years. Kind of up and down, like from the minor leagues. You remember too. what team? He was in Minnesota for a while. The big, the NHL Minnesota team. The Wild is that what they're called? Yeah, Minnesota Wild. Yeah, Google him, dude. His name is uh, Casey Wellman. Wow, <laughs> isn't that a cool story? Oh my god, I love hockey, man. I played goalie in the uh, forty and over league, man. Did you really? Oh, I still do. Oh, I didn't know that. And then, uh, oh, did. Did you play when you were here at all, the hockey? Because our, our radio guy, Denny oh, Matthews, no. plays all the time. No, 
No, I don't. I didn't play when I was over there. No, no. Back then, I didn't even think about. It. I got into the hockey when I got in the fire department over here. Oh, okay. Um, I, 98 I started. Let's see. I've talked to Jeff Montgomery, who is doing a TV post game and owns part of the radio station here in town and, that you played with. Who else is there? Oh, uh, oh. Andy McGaffigan. Remember him? Yeah, no, yeah, I remember Andy McGaffigan. He's in, uh, what? F- uh, where's he at? Clearwater? No, Clearwater? Somewhere in Florida. He's selling insurance now. Wow. Um, and, uh, um, Jeff Montgomery's still doing stuff with the Royals? Yeah, he's, he's the last couple of years, he just had a big, uh, Hip replacement surgery, though, like a few weeks ago, so he can hardly get around right now. But wow, yeah, he's. I'm trying to think who else there is. There's probably some more guys. You ever, you ever, you ever run into these guys? Yeah, some of them. Yeah, dude, we got to get you. I'm telling you, we got to get you back here for a game. We're gonna have to bring you back here, but maybe next year since the season's almost over. But right, right. It would be great to get, uh, dude. I'd love to buy you a beer someday. That would be like a, a thrill oh, for me. Oh man. <laughs> well, what 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 do you guys do? You do like an alumni game where the guys have uniforms? They do it, yeah. They do like uh, they do fantasy camp out in uh, Surprise, Arizona. They train in Arizona now, outside of Phoenix with Texas. They have a share of the complex with the Rangers now. But I know they have oh, okay. that. I've never actually gone out there for that yet. I go out to spring training most years, but I've never actually been out for for that. But. Yeah, but I mean, at Royal Stadium, do they still do like alumni uh, game or something like that? I don't know. They do alumni batting practice. Like you can pay to do batting practice. I don't know if they have a game anymore. Do you remember those fathers, uh, the father son games they used to have? Yeah, yeah. I wish they still did those. Did you ever bring your son out to that or anything? Yeah, yeah. I have, you know what? I'm gonna send you a picture from my phone. I'm gonna send you a picture so you can see my what my family did for me for my 40th birthday. They took my uh, big league uniform and they framed it with my son's shirt on underneath mine. No way. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna, I'll send you a picture, man. That's cool as hell, man. That's cool as hell. Yeah. Well, here's yeah. a here's a one other random question I always wonder. So I collected. I was a big baseball card collector growing up, and I still have a whole bunch of autographs. I have like a Royals room at my house, but. Did, uh-huh. What what was your favorite baseball card of yourself? Did you have a favorite one that you like best? Um, I think it's got to be the Topps one. Nineteen ninety. Yes, nineteen ninety Topps. So you're sliding. I remember that your arms are up in the air. Yep, that's yeah. the uh, Yankee game. Oh, okay, that's that from that yep. game. I remember mm-hmm. your Bowman card. Your 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 uh, maybe a spring training stadium, maybe. Mm-hmm. Just yeah, like, I used to be in Bowman upper deck flare. I remember the upper and, deck one. Uh, and uh, tops. You were on the the one with Tori Lavolo too, right? Yeah, that's the Flair one. Yep. Yeah, dude. Yep. He, lo- he's the he's the bench coach for um, John Farrell. Yeah, he should be a big league manager soon. He's he should. I mean, I hear a lot of good things about him. So. Yeah, he uh, um, John Farrell and I we played together at Triple A All Star game. I just I was catching him. <laughs> oh my god! You know his son is in the Royal system now. His son's a pitcher now in A ball, I think. Oh yeah, high lowe high lowe this year, yeah, for Lexington Legends this year. Wow! So that's good. <laughs> it's amazing. I'm like now that I'm out of the game, it's like I see these guys' kids are playing. I'm like, and then when I hear the name, I go, "Is that his son?" Yeah. So I gotta go to my computer, which I'm not even a computer guy, and I start to look up the names, and I said, "Oh my God, it is his son!" You know, and I just just can't believe it. I see some of these successful like, field, the Prince. I remember him. He used to be in the Tigers, running around in the club office. Yeah. Yeah. You know, now now he's a big stud. I remember that kid. He was chubby and chunky when he was a little boy. <laughs> Just like that. He was right? in line drives out the outfield grass, man, when we the day used to have him take band practice in the you know you know, before we start our workouts the dad get out an hour early with him. Yeah. I'm looking at funny. I'm looking at my 1990 media guide right now at all the old names. I'm looking at your profile right now. Remember the guys like Jorge Pedre, remember him? Jorge Pedre. Yeah, Jay Bob. Oh wait. 
I'm looking at who did he play for? He played for you guys. He played for the Royals like like ninety. He, I think he was in '91 though when he made his debut. But he was yeah '91. He was with me '90. Yeah, there's a. I'm looking at the non-roster players like Jay Baller, Kevin Burrell, Jim Campbell, Ray Chadwick. Kevin Burrell was a catcher. <laughs> yeah, dude. Derek Clark. Uh, yeah. Jim Lamasters, Jeff Scholes, Russ Mormon. Uh, yeah. Tim, hey, guess what? Tim Spear. <laughs> yep. Russ Mormon. I saw him. Two years ago, here in Rochester, <laughs> cool. yeah, he, was, he was scouting for somebody. And then I saw Matt Winters this year and also Bob Schaefer. What's Matt Winters doing? I'd love to catch up with him, too. What's he doing these days? Matt Winters is a big-time scout for the Japanese team Nuh-uh. here in America. Yeah. I didn't know. That's uh, cool. Yo, how about Bob Schaefer goes like this? Because Bob Schaefer works for the Nationals, the big league. Uh, he's in the National Washington. Yeah. Washington Nationals. He works with them. Bob Boone's over there, too. Yeah, He's in operations or something up in the office. Yeah, I mean. But, um, so Matt Winters here in Rochester, Triple A, they were looking at that kid, uh, Cronobello or something, I think, I think they call him. And uh, they were thinking about trying to give him, they offered him a million dollars to go over to Japan, and he didn't want to go. He still thinks he wants to go back to the big league. So they shut him down, because he was crushing, like, the first month and a half, then he was over for May. Are you so? Do you still follow the Royals at all? Are they still one of your favorite teams? No, I, I just I just look at baseball all around in general. I don't really actually. I mean, I'm happy for them, and I came from that organization, so you know I've been watching them more now because they're doing much better. But I watch all 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 baseball. Like tonight, I was watching the game when I got home from my uh, friend's boat, so I put the game on right away. I know you told me you're gonna be at the game, but I always try to watch the Sunday night ESPN game. Oh, and I watch MLB all the time. I see some of the guys that I know on there, like Harold Reynolds, who we were teammates in Puerto Rico together. Dan Plesac, I remember him when we played against each other in our rookie league years in the Appalachian yeah. League. Dan, I love he that guy. Gas. The lefty man for the Brewers. Yeah, yeah, he threw gas, man, in, in uh, 1983, man. I crushed him though. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, because he threw hard and straight. You know, what I mean, you. Know, you just out of college, man. You know how it is. You're throwing that gas, and you just think you're going to come to the pros and throw it by people. Yeah. And then, you ever heard of, you remember this guy, Glenn Braggs? Yeah, of course. Outfielder, left-handed hitter for the Reds, no, maybe? No, he was a right-handed hitter, Glenn right-handed. Braggs. Yes, outfielder, though, right? Yes. Yeah, he was left-fielder. He was with the Brewers where he came up with first. Yes. He was that big black guy who was chiseled. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. He, he was a good friend of mine. He freaking hit a ball against us in rookie league. That we're still looking for it. <laughs> it. Hit the McDonald's out of the stadium and landed on the roof of the McDonald's across the street. He reminds me of uh, Billy Hatcher and Herm Winningham. Remember those two guys? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember Billy Hatcher and Herm Winningham. Yeah. Oh, oh my man, God, those were great ones. Well, well last thing I got to ask you, I guess, then is what would you like to say to the the people of Kansas City and Royals fans listening to the to you know to our interview? Well, I would like to say hello to my Royals fans and uh, the Royals organization. I'm always thankful for the opportunity. Uh, like I said, I've been blessed and fortunate. Um, I got to reach a milestone that a lot of guys wish they can reach. And uh, once again, I just want to be thankful. I had a great time in Kansas City. Um, I love playing at Royal Stadium. I think it's a beautiful park. Fans are beautiful. And I just want to tell you thank you and good luck this year. And I'm going to eventually, one of these days, I'm going to burn you a DVD of that game. I have you the whole nine innings. I have a full game that you caught. I'll, I'll have to dig it up. Maybe this winter I'll send it out to you also. So if you can have that. Which game was that? Was it that was, the game at the Grand Slam? No, 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 no. It was, I think it was against the Tigers. It was like a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, just a random game. 
I don't even remember. Oh. I'll I'll dig it up though. I, th- I think it was from it was from 1990. Yeah. Okay. Because I know you had at least two or three at bats on it, and because I, I was watching it last winter, and I was like, "Damn, that's my boy." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'll, well, I'll, if you ever around town, let me know, bro. I will, man. You do the same. Well, hopefully, we'll, uh, I'm buying you a beer one of these days. We can, hopefully we got several years left. So one of these years. Good. All right, man. All right, man. God Thank bless. Thank you very much. All right, take, take care. care. You too. God bless. Bye bye.